no, Tim. Oh. <laughs> this is the worst possible thing that could have happened. Because <laughs> this oh, is going to be yes, the thing that people. everyone remembers from this podcast now. It's not going to be your insightful, you know, insight into like, insightful insight. It's not going to be your uh, no, thoughtful discussion of the movie. No, be... no, no. It's, <laughs> it's going <laughs> to. No, I, I get it. It'd be, and it'd be really awful if, you know, we have all this insight and suddenly uh-huh. everyone just comes away from this and they just think, man, that was really thick milky. Like, <laughs> that... Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined today by Tim from Hello Future Me. Tim, welcome to the show. Hello! <laughs> I am so pumped to be here because Ooh. I get to talk about the best film ever made hands down. This is not up for discussion. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I hope that you're ready to discuss it because uh, the conceit of this podcast is that I bring you on and then we talk about a movie for like an hour and a half or so. Uh, but, you know, every every week we bring on a new guest and... We let them pick any movie in the world to watch and discuss, which is why, Tim, I really only have one question for you at the top of the show here. Why did we watch Blade Runner 2049? Uh, because I got to pick any film to talk about, and if I'm ever <laughs> going to pick a film to talk about, it's always Blade Runner 2049 mm-hmm. uh, for so many reasons um, that I can't get into right now because you've got a summary that we've got to go through and talk as we uh, go. Yes, for sure. Uh, I mentioned that you were guesting on this podcast to Red from uh, OSP, and she said, oh, Tim's doing Blade Runner 2049, right? And I'm like, yes, how'd you know? I haven't told you that yet. And she's like, I just assumed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the thing. Like, people, will, people pick up once they've seen my channel or talk to me long enough that like, if there's a discussion that can fit it in, then I will fit it in. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's let's fit that discussion in here on this podcast. So we open in Blade Runner with a series of logos for like two minutes, but we know that it's a sci-fi movie because they're all glitching in and out a bunch to make us know that there's a bit of style to that Warner Bros. logo. Yeah. Kind of set the mood. We open on a series of titles that pop up, starting with replicants, and we get the definition of them. So for those who are unfamiliar with Blade Runner, in the first movie, we would get some most of this information. This is sort of bringing the audience up to speed about what has happened since last we met this particular universe. Um, Replicants, bioengineered humans, were designed originally by the Tyrell Corporation for use in off-world construction and terraforming projects. Their enhanced strength made them ideal slave labor. So there is a a subclass of society of these bioengineered humans, replicants. And there were a series of violent rebellions, and their manufacture became prohibited. Tyrell Corp went bankrupt, and that sort of brings us up to now with the rise of Neander... The Wallace Neander? Corporation. Wallace Corp. <laughs> Wallace That's Corporation. Right. Yeah, this isn't your daddy's corporation, which would be the Tyrell Corp from the first movie. No, no, no. Now it's got a new name. They're doing it's the got same a new shit, name. though. With Jared yeah. Leto. With, uh, <laughs> with uh, Mr. 30 Seconds to Mars himself. That's that's absolutely right. I actually, the Wallace Corporation, I never liked the title as much. Like, Tyrell sounds really cool. Yeah. And it's like Wallace and Gromit, you know? It's like, <laughs> that's the name I tied to the, to the name Wallace. So, obviously, but, you, so, a number of symbols. After, immediately after that, we get into, like, uh, the eye. Mm-hmm. Do you know the significance of the eye in the Blade Runner world? It's, like, the most common symbol associated with Blade Runner, basically. Apart right. from the uh, origami. 
Mm-hmm. The eye is a significant in this movie in particular as well in this opening scene because the eye is going to be how people can be identified as replicants uh, and also something that has to be collected by the Blade Runners. The titles finish out by informing us that those that hunt the older model replicants that have these open-ended lifespans to be retired, quote-unquote, which whenever someone in sci-fi says retired, you know, they usually mean killed, (laughs) Uh, are the Blade Runners. Which would have been Harrison Ford's character in the first movie's job, and now in this new movie, we'll soon meet Ryan Gosling's character's gig. Yes, uh, and he's fantastic in this. Oh, like, he's so good. I would never liked like I, I've never really. I, I'm, he's the one that's in the Notebook, right? Is he the yes. Notebook? Yes, yeah, he's the Notebook. He's in the Notebook, and I remember watching them like, oh, so he's a romance character, and then he came out, and he's like, in the, my best, the best film ever made, my favorite <laughs> film. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's incredible. Yeah, he's a he's a surprise. He surprised me in this the first time I saw it because I, I had that same uh, kind of assumption. I'm like, oh, you know, he's kind of like a okay leading man type in these romances. I think I saw this after I watched La La Land, which is where he's another similar. Um, That's right. Yeah, romantic lead type. Uh, and I was like, wait, why is he so much better in this movie than in every other performance I've ever seen him give? He, but he's got this really subtle acting going on. And, oh, I know, he, he, it's so few expressions, but when he expresses stuff, it's like powerful. Oh. But also, Ugh. this is a romance film. This is, <laughs> is. and I will, I will die on that hill. This is Blade Runner 2049 is a romance film. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. We're re we're reclassifying it into the rom com category on Netflix. <laughs> My girlfriend hates this film, and I, I, when, I, when she tra- <laughs> first when I first tried to get her to watch it, she's like, "Why should I watch it?" And I said, "Because it's a it's a romance story." And oh, she said, no. "Is it between?" And she's I'm not even kidding that when I first brought it up, she said, "Tim, is it between? Is it between robots?" And and I was like, "No, what?" <laughs> <laughs> Technically, no. What? If you're going to yeah, be I'm, that specific. I technically no, but it's like she knew me so well that, that it would be between robots. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so we, we open on, of course, the eye and then sort of fade into this geometric overview of a series of circular panel arrangements. This is going to be our first in a, a number of sequences in which we get contemplative wide shots of various locales in the movie. Um, so... With those wide shots, yes, I already have notes. I want to be clear. Yes, to please. I have. I, I watched through, and I, I've got sixty-four notes uh, from from things that I, I picked up on watching it through this again. <laughs> so the, the the footage that you see of those wide uh, solar plants and 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 those um, uh, grub farms, uh, actually, some of it's taken from the uh, a, a cut of the original nineteen eighty two film that didn't make mm-hmm. it. Um, it was from mm-hmm. some exer- from. Uh, scenes that just didn't, uh, that never made it in the in the final cut, and the director decided to include them in 2049, sort of as a homage that most people are going to miss. But, yeah, the symbol, by the way, it's like a symbol for the soul as well. Um, it's an important symbol uh, that colour and life in the eyes, uh, as, as well as, like, how the eyes react is indicative of emotions. So a lot of the times mm-hmm. throughout the film, you'll see that eyes are used to indicate humanity, kind of. Yeah, they're uh, a recurring symbol. It's also interesting that a lot of the uh, production design, a lot of the settings are very cubical almost. And so to have the sort of eye shape echoed in these opening wide shots, it sort of sets you up to kind of transition from that close above the eye into them a little bit more interestingly and also indicates that they might be for something more life-related, I guess. It's farm country that we're essentially going to be flying over here, uh, all very desaturated, but familiar in pattern. 
a alarm mm-hmm. buzzer inside of a flying car so that you know it's science fiction buzzes and rouses our LAPD Blade Runner K who will all recognize immediately as Ryan Gosling from his sort of like trance state as he approaches a farm inside a tank full of bugs because it is a protein farm with that farms for bugs love that we must eat the, the bugs <laughs> it's the food of the future eat them bugs no i don't want to eat bugs <laughs> i'm sorry tim you're gonna have to blade runner said that that's what 2049's got this in is, store for us that's where the future is heading yeah 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 also in the book in in do andrew's dream for electric sheep the last forest is up in the north parts of canada there, there you go mm. little a little fun fact <laughs> thank you uh yeah i guess unless you live in canada in which case you can head out in the woods Go find the fair folk or whatever and live a fantasy novel instead of sci-fi. That'd be nice. Well, better than this sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Inside a tank full of bugs is a man in a protective suit. He sort of watches as the shuttle comes and lands next to this old, uh, dead tree. Pay attention to that tree, kids, because that's going to be a reoccurring landmark in the rest of the movie. Through the sort of dusty landscape, the... Uh, Blade Runner approaches the old farmhouse, which is sort of concrete and barren, and inside, this silence settles in to really feel how empty the room is. There's not a sign of life, except for a pot boiling on the stove to let us know that someone is about. The farmer, meanwhile, gets out of their suit and sort of walks inside at first what looks like an empty room, Uh, but if you look into the left corner in the shadows, there's the outline of Ryan Gosling sitting quietly, as he is wont to do in this film. Absolutely. And uh, this is one thing you will notice with this film, which is a long, quiet, contemplative moments. <laughs> yes. A lot of my notes are just like, ah, yes. And then it's quiet and contemplative for another like five minutes or so. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> lots of that. That's, I, I watched your cyberpunk video fairly recently because you were, you were a guest on the Overly Sarcastic podcast. I was like, I got to watch our guest's big projects uh and i specifically remember the discussion I mean, it's like of two long hours long i admire shots. you, <laughs> well, you I made it, so I... <laughs> they are it's a it's a very pretty film there's a reason that this film if you look up like every frame of painting type like twitter accounts where they just post screenshots from movies there's a lot from it's this always film, coming just, like, up various it's always landscapes coming up. yeah always so Dave Bautista, because he is in this movie, turns around and, and starts chatting with Kay, who is apologizes for entering uh, and tracking some dirt in. Um, and Dave Bautista, who is going to be named in just a second, but it's Dave Bautista, and I forgot he was in this movie, so we got we to gotta call that out. So Absolutely. he doesn't mind the and dirt. And also, <laughs> can I just say about Dave Bautista's agent, I don't know who his agent is, but he's got a beast of an agent because he gets the, just the best <laughs> roles for his character. And mm-hmm. you'll notice something really interesting about this scene with Dave Bautista's character is that he's a very imposing guy and he's a very mm-hmm. stony looking guy. Like you expect him to be really gruff and really violent even. And of course he does end up attacking Kay in the film, but there's this really nice kind of juxtaposition of how gentle Sapper is with everything how he cleans his glasses very slowly and carefully, how he pours mm-hmm. the water. Even a kettle, by the way. Oh, he's got a pot, not a kettle, sorry. 
uh, how quietly he walks through the door and how light his footfalls are. It really subverts your expectations about who this guy is as a character, which again mm-hmm. fits into this nice theme of uh, people thinking that these replicants are going to be kind of robots built for doing whatever they want, just big mechanical hunky things or, or well, not, not big mechanical things, but like <laughs> they're not very human, they're not very gentle, whatever, and then he's doing this really kind of calm, very uh, careful, very human, loving way of doing things. Yeah, it's uh, it's immediately highlighted in throughout their conversation. So you, as you mentioned, he's got this gentle way of doing things. And what we learn from Kay and Sapper sort of talking back and forth in this beginning scene, we learn that Sapper Morton, who has a, you know, ID number of NK68514 to indicate to us that he's a replicant, was previously a military officer. Um, so we expect, you know, sort of this hardiness from him, but instead, like mm. you mentioned, all of his actions show us that he actually has a gentler side, which sort of subverts what he was created for, and is our first sort of less overt hint that there is more to what these replicants are capable of than what is assumed of them by the society that they're in. Um, yeah. And of course, when Sapper is asked by Kay if that's who he is, he responds that he's a farmer, not a soldier. You know, they chat about what he's farming, the bugs, the protein for Wallace. Um, and he offers some to Kay, who turns him down, since he likes to keep an empty stomach before the hard part of the day is done, which is a very, like, John Wayne it's sort s- of quiet <laughs> Western thing to say. There's something you'll notice about all this dialogue, and this is true for, like, all of the film, is that uh, there's so much subtext to it. There's mm-hmm. so much not being said. Like, di- I mean, part of the, like, dialogue is kind of uncommon in this film in the sense that it's filled <laughs> up with a lot of, as you said, contemplative long shots of not much. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I just I just love that. So like, you know, uh, don't, I want to keep a, it's an empty stomach till the hard part of the day is done. You know, I, I don't want to eat anything till I've murdered you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of like, the whole situation is fairly tense, but something that I personally really like about this movie is the way that they use silence. Um, there's really interesting sound design and when the when the noise does pick up it's perfectly mm-hmm. tailored to the tone of the movie but they also have I would say out of the almost three hour runtime maybe an hour 45 of it is nearly completely silent uh, and they sort of break that in this scene to start ramping up the tension by having the kettle boiling which is classic shorthand for a situation getting tense as sort of K oh and, my gosh uh, I've never picked that up before <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah I got one like, in. not consciously <laughs> No, like, not consciously. I didn't even think of that, but that's so true. I would love you to point out more of those. Oh, I'm, I was like, I don't know if there's, you know, usually when I come on these episodes, like, my guests really love the movie they picked, and so it's it's less about, you know, one-upping someone and being like, I noticed this thing you did, and more just having a dialogue. But for this episode, it was like, I really don't know if there's anything I can say about this movie that Tim has, <laughs> hasn't thought of before. <laughs> we got one, kids. <laughs> No, no, I don't mean that. I'm very sorry. I don't want to railroad you. <laughs> no, oh. it's all good. I, I love having people on who picked a movie that they have a lot to say about, because that makes for a really interesting episode. So we'll feel, please continue to point stuff out. But, you know, Kettles, man, the classic cinema shorthand for situations getting tense. Uh, really popular in sound design. And um, I'm trying to think of another good example of it, but nothing's coming to mind other than a student film I worked on, which is not super someone, helpful. Someone <laughs> hiding in a, in a bush, like quietly playing a whistle like maybe that is that yeah yeah that that works (laughs) that's good enough so uh also dave 
Bautista, who Sapper mentions, I wrote him in my notes as Dave instead of Sapper, which was a mistake until later in the movie, uh, mentions <laughs> that he's been, been on this farm since 2020, uh, which was just recontextualized for us coming out of this pandemic here. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, you've been on the oh, same no. spot since 2020? That's a mood. <laughs> Also, that classic, like, oh, man, the old sci-fi people really had uh, high ambitions for where we'd be <laughs> in 2020. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so the uh, duo continues to chat a bit, uh, and uh, Kay goes about preparing to scan Sapper's eye. But as he's doing so, Sapper kind of pulls out a little knife in the corner and begins the quick brawl sequence all of this is uh shot and designed very brutally they have just a all-out slugfest where he's slamming k into a wall and we actually get a shot from the other side of the wall where it's sort of like bulging out oh, yeah, on itself where he's getting out. hit yeah it's oof oh man that's gotta hurt uh, <laughs> every hit in this film is like it just just hurts you know they have some of the most satisfying thud noises in this film of any movie i've ever seen like Every sound effect is so impactful. It's like tangible thud noises, which is just incredible. Yeah. Kay manages to do his job uh, scanning Sapper's eye and leaving him kind of groaning on the ground. As he stands up, he says, don't get up, please, uh, and goes to get his gun. But Sapper, before Kay finishes the job, asks him how it feels to be retiring his own kind. We learn in this moment that Kay is, in fact, also a replicant, but he's one of the newer models. Um, the older models are being retired because they are rebelling and running. And Sapper says to him, you know, the new ones have never seen a miracle. That's why you guys don't run. That's why you guys don't rebel. But mm. it is not enough to yeah, save I, him. I think one of the things that I think, like, they, they always say that 2049 did really well because it built on the first one without being like a copy of it or without it being, mm -hmm. you know, ruining the legacy of the first one, anything like that. One of the ways they did that is with, of course, the reveal that K being a replicant right from the start then he knows that right from the start then we're not going to have that same twist of oh he's also a replicant or oh oh they're a replicant you know like mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm. what they sort of tried to do in the first one so you've got a very different type of tension uh, right from the beginning that i i really liked yeah i think this is a really good example of like how to do a sequel well because i think fundamentally what you need to do in a sequel is to keep the flavor and world that you've established but tell a fundamentally different story uh and of course both of blade runner and 2049 are both you know cyberpunk sci-fi kind of action films mm. um but i think they address slightly different questions and i think we'll see that throughout 2049 as we discuss it in what aspects of the replicant experience they choose to focus in and what aspects of humanity they're choosing to explore here yeah Absolutely. So K takes Sapper's eye and returns to his hover car to check in with his boss. He, you know, brings up to speed on what happened. He's like, it's just Sapper at the farm. I scanned the whole place. But before leaving, he goes to look at the base of the dead old tree where there is a single flower, uh, a point of yellow in this landscape of gray laid at the base of the tree, this little flicker of life sort of catching his attention. He bags the flower as evidence and scans the tree, mm. buried underneath which is some sort of mystery box. J.J. Abrams, you can get out of here. This is not your kind of mystery box. <laughs> also, the, the flower, um, the flower is the first real color that we see mm -hmm. in the film. 
it's 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 yellow and uh the rest of the the film uh, the rest of the film up to this point has been very monotonous gray and yes. dark it's 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 part of uh, the this important theme of death co- uh, new life coming from death uh which is why the, the flower grows out of a dead tree We're, and also as we later learn uh, a baby coming out of a mother who died in childbirth mm-hmm. so uh, I, I just, I, I like that, that little <laughs> parallel. Also, the mystery box thing. You know what? You're right. I, I don't <laughs> think. I, I, I would hate to see a J.J. Abrams version of oh. Blade Runner 2049. No, like... there are some directors that just absolutely should not do thinky sci-fi, and J.J. is one of them. Like, I, I think he can do a fun action <laughs> flick, but God, I would not want to watch his version of a Blade Runner movie. Um... Just lens flare every... <laughs> is he's the lens oh, flare one, right? Yeah, He's the lens flare guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Look, he can make a fun movie, but not in this series. No. Uh, yeah, so, you know, kind of jumping back into Blade Runner, uh, we follow Kay as he's flying home over more long contemplative shots, uh, but this time of grayed, <laughs> <laughs> grayed out sort of like very densely packed housing with points of uh, faded light in between where we have to assume neon That's is. so claustrophobic. This is a cyberpunk movie. Oh, oh for sure. There's a... Uh, you know, natural things in this universe are rare, um, especially living natural things. And that's in stark contrast yeah. to the city that of L.A. where the, most of the movie is set, um, which is, of course, these densely packed artificial uh, constructed housing. Uh, and there's lots of neon and holograms to let us know that we're watching a cyberpunk movie uh, as a full full number KD6 dot stash K. Oh, my God. Every time I try to read numbers out, it just short circuits my brain kd6 kd6-3.7 returns to the lapd uh and when he goes through a test to make sure that he is functioning how he's supposed to it's a a post-traumatic baseline test where he essentially has to repeat a certain number of phrases in particular the words cells and interlink interlinked i would fail that test apparently (laughs) and (laughs) i'm not a replicate guys you heard it here first (laughs) Well, you, uh, they, they, sometimes they don't know. Sometimes That's you true. don't know they could already be here. You could be one of them. So, the, do you know what the lines here are from? Uh, not off the top of my head. Please uh, <laughs> enlighten us. Too. They're from they're from Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. And <laughs> do you know what Pale Fire is about? I do not. It is about uh, a man who is incredibly lonely, and so imagines himself as a king of a country, a country called Zembla. Hmm. It's, he's so lonely and his life's pretty awful, and so to create a better narrative for himself, to give him hope, to give him a sense of purpose, he believes that he is a lot bigger and a lot better than he is. Is this ringing any bells about <laughs> what 2049 might be about? <laughs> Mm, I, it's, it could potentially be foreshadowing there, Tim. I it think there's uh, <laughs> some thematic okay. links we might be approaching soon. <laughs> of course, it is dependent on like the viewer knowing Vladimir Nabokov's Pale Fire, which, I yes. mean, okay, yeah, sure. English lit- <laughs> literature majors, maybe, but, you know, anyone else beyond that, it just sounds like cool poetry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, it's all also based on this idea of connection between people, between cells, and kind of the, the through line of the movie, there is a lot of emphasis placed on the types of connections that people form and how that sort of can build your own humanity in a way. 
but we'll kind of touch on that a bit more, I think, when we when we meet Joy for the first time. I have so many thoughts <laughs> on this. I, to be clear, I think everyone understands this movie incorrectly, and the point of this will come later because we can't. We're doing it in sequential order, but I do have <laughs> a everyone is wrong hot take. That... <laughs> Ooh, I love those. All right, so a voice refers to him as Constant K, indicating that not only did he nail the test this time, but he's never really had an issue before. K is a model replicant. Uh, and I think that's a really nice, like, quick piece of character introduction there, because, like, at first he's just a classic, kind of gritty sci-fi protagonist, and now it's like, okay, we know, we've learned something about him beyond he is a replicant, we've learned. He is a replicant who has never malfunctioned, that sets us up for anything that he does out of the norm to be a significant development for his character. Mm. He turns in for the day and returns to his apartment, where I would love to point out that there is a woman who is credited in the top cast list in IMDb as Angry Old Lady, yelling at him. Uh, what? Making... <laughs> Wait, so the woman a, who's, in the, who's in the stairway going, yes. Ah, you, ah, no! <laughs> yes, she's credited as Angry Old Lady, and she's listed before uh, Love and Neander Wallace in IMDb, and it's that, great. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I love it so much. Um, but at... You know, replicants in this universe, a lot of people are uh, racist towards, for lack of a better term, calling them uh, various slurs. Go away, Skinner. Yeah, exactly. And so this old lady is harassing him in his place of residence, where presumably she lives too. I don't know a lot of old ladies who go and just like hang out in the stairway of miscellaneous apartments, but I guess it's the future, so who knows? There are a lot of people who hang out in that stairway. You know. <laughs> there are far more people in that stairway than I assume would live in that building. Although, you know, it's a crowded city. It's very rarely is he actually uh, alone on the streets there. So maybe maybe it's just uh, different uh, habitation fair. laws. Yeah. Sure. Maybe. He enters his apartment and activates a panel where the voice of joy welcomes him home. They sort of make polite chit-chat about his day. She asks him how it was as he sort of goes about cleaning himself up. We don't see Joy just yet, but as they're talking, um, the song Summer Wind by Frank Sinatra picks up and plays throughout the background, and they have this... It's reminiscent of, like, a 50s sitcom entrance. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Intentionally. Oh, yeah, you listen to the dialogue here, and he got shot... And he says, I had an accident at work. And then she goes, how was your meeting? <laughs> you know, it's all very coded mm-hmm. words. And it creates the illusion of this normal life that he really wants. And of course, Joy is dressed up in a kind of 1950s sort of uh, yep. uh, kind of like domestic housewife type thing. Uh-huh. It's all, it, and it really like leads you to this, leads you to that, to that conclusion that he's, uh, that he has a very different internal world compared to how he is externally, uh, very, very subtly and very nicely. One note here that is not at all as insightful as that was, is that when he sits down to eat, he has a bowl of sludge in front of him, but uh, Joy mm-hmm. puts a holographic meal on top of the sludge so that it looks different. And the only thing that my mind could autofill is that one part in like SpongeBob episodes where Plankton would sit down for dinner and his wife Karen would make like the holographic food. And that's not at all <laughs> on the level. <laughs> That is, level that is, no. <laughs> you know what I'm gonna say? I hereby declare it was an intentional reference. <laughs> uh huh. It's a callback because that came out before this did. So who did it first? SpongeBob yeah, did it first. Absolutely. God. I mean, what what are the chances, uh, right? What are the chances? <laughs> it has to be it. I mean, all media is fundamentally derivative, you know. <laughs> 
so Joy goes about sort of cheering Kay up, uh, but he's like, you know, I've, I've got a present for you. And uh, he gives her this emanator. So up until now, up until now, she's only been able to travel around the apartment through a kind of projector attached projector to the ceiling. And now he allows her to use this sort of handheld device to go anywhere. She can leave their apartment for the first time. She can travel anywhere that that uh, emanator goes. He asks her where she wants to go, and she decides on the roof where it is raining. There's going to be a lot of that in this movie. And I think that yes. it is oh, really... such a beautiful scene. <laughs> so like, pretty. But there's, there's, uh, there's, there's actually there's some really cool stuff that they, that they do here. So do you, do you remember what, uh, sh- what he says after he says, you know, hey, here's a gift. And she said, what's it for? And he says, and she says, is it our anniversary? Do you remember what he says? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says. I think it was along the lines of like it can be or no, it's not. Yes, yeah, he says. He says no, but let's just say that it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like the overwhelming impression of this first scene that you get with Joy is that he is basically role playing with her as like as like that domestic life, but more mm-hmm. importantly, he's role playing as treating her as entirely human, and she treats him as entirely human and this that's a really important theme in the film that humanity is comes from how we treat one another that it's a it's a it's a source of uh, it's so it's constructed humanity that sort mm-hmm. of thing and so like saying no but let's just say that it is you know like th- this whole thing is about investing life with meaning regardless of whether or not it has inherent meaning you know Mm-hmm. Um, that they are being human, doing human things, anniversaries, uh, birthdays, that sort of stuff, in spite of them not necessarily having one and, and constructing that sort of meaning that we would normally associate with ourselves for themselves. And there's also a couple of screen tricks, which I found interesting. So mm-hmm. when she first walks on screen, she is she's projected and you can see her come into form. Um, mm-hmm. You can see her flicker and appear. But once she's given this item, which is him basically giving an anniversary gift, it's him making her as real as possible, him validating her humanity, him believing in her, role-playing with her as human, when she appears after that's activated, she walks off-screen onto screen as if normal human character would. Yeah, she's uh, that's a that's a neat screen language trick because they do a lot of jump cutting in this movie intentionally we've had a lot of jump cuts in past episodes of the podcast that we pointed out because they were bad but in this in this movie it's intentional because whenever they jump cut it's either to dilate time or to indicate that someone is moving in a natural way and by having that shot that you just mentioned where she crosses out of frame and re-enters as a human would normally do when walking across a room uh it really that smoothness um in match cutting there helps kind of like re-emphasize the point that you're making of now she has this fragment of humanity that is being constructed for her and for them in that moment. Mm, mm, Absolutely. So on the roof, the rain is falling down as it is wont to do. I thought it was really, I think this whole scene is very pretty. It's very quite beautiful, but uh, I, I particularly love as Joy and her algorithm sort of adjust to the droplets to allow them to pass through her, but then uh, have the image of them falling onto her hands and she oh, allows yeah, herself right. to get yeah it's... i didn't notice that oh i didn't notice that like that it was like adjusting her algorithm to 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 account for the rain i just i was i've literally all i've got is for a note for this is the rain scene is so gorgeous <laughs> <laughs> like because it's just it's just so pretty it's such a pretty pretty scene 
it is. It's it's really, really beautiful. It's maybe I think I hesitate to say it's my favorite looking scene in the movie because there's a lot of very pretty scenes in this movie, but it's up there for sure. Uh, the oh. two kind of like share a moment of like happiness and togetherness uh, before Joy is frozen as a notification sound goes off um, and Kay is getting a call. The notification sound here is different from the sound that usually happens when Joy turns on. There's sort of a Wallace jingle that happens every time she appears in a scene. Dum, and I'm going to point that out dum, here. Dum, dum. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'm pointing that out here just so that we know it for later um, because sometimes it'll it'll pop up as like an ominous hint that something from Wallace is going to show up in the scene. Joy's frozen. Kay gets a call. The dig team that they sent to the tree is finished up and he needs to go back into the LAPD to talk about the new lead that they got uh so it's back to work for our blade runner k didn't he, didn't he just get home like he, he yes. just got home and was like yes. <laughs> how like long i swear like not even commute? a day has passed <laughs> yeah but it's, it's also like what's his work day like like oh my god you know there's no work-life balance i guess the the cynical view of that would be well you know he's a replicant so they're not giving him the work-life they balance don't really they care. would a human employee yeah but the non-cynical reading of that is he just has maybe the worst commute ever because he lives and works in Los Angeles, and I have to assume that that city remains a nightmare to drive through in the future. I actually do remember when I, I've I've only ever been to America once, but I I remember flying into LA and oh, it God. was just it was at night, and I do, I've never seen a city that big. It was just this wow. endless ocean of city. It was actually quite weird for me coming from someone who my I, I'm in the, the like the third biggest or second biggest city in New Zealand and you can drive mm-hmm. from one side to the other in half an hour. Oh wow, that's as someone who now lives in New York City, that's uh wild to me. <laughs> <laughs> No, LA is, um, I, I lived in LA for, uh, only for like a few months, but it was a nightmare to navigate just because it, I don't like driving and you have to drive everywhere in that city. And it, it's sprawling too. It's not, it's not at all condensed like a lot of the East Coast cities are. It's, it's just a wide expanse of low, mm. low floor level housing. Um, and I, I, so I, they never say it in this movie, but I have to assume that it is fundamentally the same amount of uh, irritating to get around in 2049 as it is 2021, but <laughs> that's, that's uh, an extrapolation that I'm making from from lived experience rather totally than what is told to one. us. I t- <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the scene, also, like, there's mm-hmm. a line where she, uh, uh, she says, "What she says? She says like." I love being here with you or something like that. And mm-hmm. he says, you don't have to say that because of course he wants her to say that. And he is still kind of under that thing of like, Oh, you know, I wanted to say that, but it's still not really real. Does she mm-hmm. actually say that? Or is it just because I want to hear it? Uh, I think that's a good thing to note too, because joy, as we'll see several times in the movie, there's advertisements for the joy product placed. Uh, she is wherever you want her to be, whatever you want her to be. Um, it's a it's a holographic companion that is sold by Wallace. So while this Joy is a very distinct person, as we kind of established through her relationship with Kay, the Joy product is the kind of the contrast point to that throughout the movie. Mm. And so early on like this, we, the audience, aren't necessarily sure, is this hologram just doing what Kay wants her to, or is there actually some sort of dynamic here? Um, and it kind yeah. of gets expounded upon later on. And it's a discussion. It's a discussion that the film mm-hmm. goes kind of like it leads us towards an answer, but it does it does open it with like okay, so at the, at the start, uh, we're not really sure if she is her own person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so Kay returns to work where the box from under the tree is scanned, and inside there's some bones, kids. We got some human bones in there, and also hair. We learn that the woman inside the box, because it was a woman, was buried about 30 years ago, and her cause of death is identified as uh, a, a death in childbirth. But upon further examination, we also learn that because uh, Sapper was a field medic, he was able to give her an emergency C-section, and so the child of this woman is alive somewhere, but not was nowhere to be found, notably, on the farm. As uh, they sort of look through the scans of the bones further, they sort of zoom in a bunch and reveal that there are some serial numbers tacked into the bones, and we learn that the woman who gave birth was in fact a replicant, which the police (laughs) which the police chief helpfully informs us almost immediately is not possible for replicants. So we gotta we gotta knock that if you weren't sure if that was possible or not or why that was important, don't worry, the movie's got you covered. Uh, we kind of go right into the chief's office where she and Kay are discussing what they saw uh, on the bones. She's like, this didn't happen. We got to keep this under wraps. If this gets out, it's going to cause all sorts of chaos. It's going to upend like walls that keep our society functioning between replicants and real humans. And they got to just yeah. erase everything. And the wall, the wall mm-hmm. is, uh, is kind of a recurring uh, theme at bay, but uh, a, a, a recurring theme in the thing in the, in the film. Like, he, she says, the world is built on a wall, when I would actually assume a world is built, like, either side of the wall, but sure, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like a Discworld situation where it's, like, all balanced on top of the wall, it's... <laughs> <laughs> is it really a wall if everything's on top of a wall? Or does, like, a wall necessitate <laughs> yes. that things be on either side of it? <laughs> true, true. Uh, and I think she's using the wall here in its truest sense, which I were what it's most obvious sense of a barrier between two things. So, because I assume that the two yes. things that she's separating here are the replicants and the rest of human society. But, you know, she yeah. talks about this wall. You also, you also, you'll know that we get several shots throughout the film of the giant water walls. Water walls, mm-hmm. water, the giant barriers that keep the water at bay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> from flooding in. And mm-hmm. yeah, this, I think there's a more official term for them and I don't quite remember what it is. Like, um, it's not quite a dam, because it's not, like, regulating the water at all. Uh, well, they do regulate the water in the film. You can see true. that they let water in a, a little bit. Hmm. But uh, the the wall is an important thing, because obviously at the end, uh, they're fighting in the water beside the walls. And the wall mm-hmm. being this idea that, you know, they're trying to keep the truth at bay, but they can't keep the truth at bay. The tr- this sort of thing is inevitable. The wall will always break. The water will always get through. I mean... I'll get to it later on, but by the end of the <laughs> film, they're literally swimming in water, keeping mm-hmm. themselves alive with, you know, uh, uh, with, with, the <clears throat> with the wall no longer really mattering. Right. So Kay is instructed by his boss, the chief, to take care of the child. And when we say take care, we mean retire, which is we all know in sci-fi speak means murder. Uh, so he, <laughs> he seems hesitant for a brief moment, saying that he's never erased something that was born before. And when she asks him... Uh, you know, why does that matter? He he responds with, to be born is to have a soul, kind of iterating the importance that this society places on birth itself as a marker of humanity, because, of course, the replicants are all constructed. They're not born, uh, except for hmm. our one mystery child. But he agrees to do his work, and as he's leaving the office, the chief is like, yeah, you're getting on fine without a soul, don't worry about it. <laughs> Which is not the <laughs> nice thing that she thinks it is. Like, you know, no. can you imagine going fine? Like, Dude, you're amazing. You're doing totally fine without a soul. Like that's 
<laughs> it's not the You're, nicest thing to hear. Don't worry about it, man. You don't need like to have a soul to like be chill. You you're a great LAPD officer. Don't worry exactly, about it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's the equivalent of going to someone and being like, You are the best subhuman I have ever met. Yes. You know? Exactly. <laughs> but like the whole t- to be born is to have a soul. This is something that the film pretty unequivocally says is not true. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and he does have a soul in all the meaningful ways that we think a soul manifests, and that the, the film is largely about him understanding, like, you know, deconstructing this idea of what it means to have a soul. Yeah, I think it's important that he says this line in the beginning of the movie because it sort of establishes the baseline from which we're going to be disproving that thesis. Yeah. And it's also important to think that he, at this point in the movie, believes that thesis so that later on when there is something that challenges that idea, we get to actually explore how that would change his worldview um, as someone who is a replicant himself. So he goes back to his car and he does more flying past Neon with contemplative wide shots, but this time the voice of Sapper is echoing in his head about having uh, never seen a miracle. And he goes on to the uh, Wallace archive to kind of check on the serial number that they found on the bones, providing the hair um, from the container as confirmation DNA. As an archivist kind of looks her up, he mentions that the, the lady they found is an old, old model uh, and refers, <laughs> said, a, said a phrase that I really hated and I had to pause the movie to write down because he refers to the data from 30 or so years ago as thick oh, milky. Oh, thick milky. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, I hate it. I hate it, it so I much, it so much. It's awful. <laughs> I gotta admit, I don't even really know what it means. No, like, is no. It like it's, I mean, I know it, it, it means like we don't have much of it or it's hard yeah. to see or something, but how, I can't get the connection between the words like, like I guess milky. it's dense and opaque, but even then, just, just say it's dense or just say it's... Conf- don't say thick milky. Why? Is thick it supposed milky. to be slang? Is it supposed to be new age <laughs> slang? Because I... It's, no one else says it. I don't want that. I do not want... Like, I, was, I was actually wondering, I was like, is this something that people say? Or is this, like, something that no. the script writer sat down and said, you know what, we this is a future world, we need some new jargon, some new slang that the world has kind of developed over time. God. Let's go with thick milky. <laughs> I imagine it's the, whoever wrote that line is the same guy who wrote in the scene where Luke drinks the blue milk in the new Star Wars trilogy. Like, it's just that one dude. He's got a thing about milk. and we Some, guy has, a, some guy has a milk fetish. Yeah. Thick milky. Can you, can you imagine uh. Luke drinking it and going, mmm, thick milky. Oh, no. Oh, that's so bad. That's so bad. How do I scrub that image from my mind? Mmm, oh. <laughs> thick milky. Mm. Oh, right. We're going to move on from that Uh, in the same building and we know it's the same building because it's all very uh, sort of starkly decorated and sort of like an Asian fusion style and lit kind of yellow there's a meeting being had about ordering some replicant workers and a fancy lady in a very smooth high bun which is a classic indicator that she's probably a sci-fi villain because every female (laughs) sci-fi second in command has the same haircut and it's that high bun that's like all slicked back Uh, gets a notification at the same time that the um, archivist is looking into the DNA for K. Down in the archives, they're sort of chatting about the blackout, which is a, a time when the digital information of the world was all lost, all destroyed. And there is a there's an extra film, a little a little side um, a film about that. It's called uh, Blade Runner Blackout or Blade Runner 2021 20, Blackout or something. I can't remember the oh, name. Oh no. <laughs> um, 
but it's animated and it's very good. Another movie recommendation for all our viewers out there, listeners out there, whatever. So uh, they're kind of talking about how, you know, the blackout erased all the digital information, but they still have paper records. And the archivist makes a little joke about how his mom is still sad that she lost all the baby pictures or whatever, which is very sweet. This archivist has like maybe the most charisma of any character in this movie. Also, the really, the really, really dry reply from Kay being like, oh, you must have been so handsome when he's... <laughs> <laughs> you must have been a cute baby. <laughs> Something yeah, that's right. Lines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the archivist sort of picks up a little t- a file and reads off the info that they have, which describes the replicant that that bones that they found as uh, unremarkable, which Kay sort of reacts as much as Kay does to ever to anything by staring contemplatively when he says unremarkable <laughs> and responding with the exact same word. Uh, but before the archivist can respond, the definitely not a sci-fi villain bun lady comes back and takes over helping Kay with uh, his research into the bones that they found. She introduces herself as love, which is spelled L-U-V, but pronounced the same as the word love, a replicant working for Mr. Wallace. And she leads Kay to where they store data from the old model replicants. Talking about along the way, how the old models sort of give replicants a bad name and that uh, Wallace really saved the world in a way by buying the Tyrell company and starting to produce the new models of replicants. She has this like childlike ad- like uh, admiration, adoration mm-hmm. of Wallace. That's one thing so that she's very infantile in how she talks about him, you know? Yes. Uh, also, like, it's it's really interesting. Sort of, this is connected to... Uh, no, actually, I'll, I'll point that out. But her name, Love, later <laughs> later on, is, it becomes pretty significant. But uh, one of the things that's really interesting, prior to this, uh, we see the, the Wallace, the new Wallace uh, pyramids, the iconic Blade Runner pyramids. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I found really interesting on rewatching it is how they indicate wealth and indicate power, which is that even when we see her office, uh, Love's office, mm-hmm. and... It, it's it's just this wide open space that's almost entirely empty. There's nothing really in it. Yes. And, you know, a lot of the time when we indicate wealth, it's indicated with extravagance and big fancy clothes and all that sort of, you know, lots of material items. But in a world where, you know, uh, where, like, humanity's very, the, the overpopulation is destroying the world in a way, is wealth is almost entirely indicated by, by space. And so you look at, like, the archives themselves, and when he's walking into the archives, which are owned by the Wallace Corporation, this, these massive, this massive structure, it's so deep that it just goes into shadows. We don't even know how big this place is. It's so huge. The, the wealth is so overwhelming, much yes. like the pyramids. It's just these massive, empty spaces, but it's so indicative of wealth because it's just so much space compared to the poorest people where it's so claustrophobic. Uh, and in both mm-hmm. cases, that's not about material items. It's just about how much space they take up, basically. Yeah, it's uh, sort of the lawful evil version of the minimalist movement. <laughs> <laughs> Love takes Kay into the memory-bearing storage and selects one to play back the um, memory, the little glass orb, eye-shaped orb of this replicant serial number that he brought for them to get information on. Uh, and we, as she plays it back, we get the close-up of the eye again, and we hear the voices of Rachel and Deckard from the first movie going through the kind of replicant identification test, which I, the it's it's the audio from the first movie, which I really le- love yeah. that they are able to reuse that. Because when it sounds a little crunchier than the rest of the audio in the film does, it both works in terms of how old the technology is supposed to be uh, and also was made a lot 
The first time I watched this, I was like, wait a minute, I know those lines. Kay watches all of this and listens in and sort of contemplates it silently as he has wont to do. Uh, and then thanks love, tells love to thank Wallace for her, their time and uh, goes and changes direction to go to a nursing home, uh, now asking about Officer Deckard. Yeah, with his old pal, co Yeah, co-worker. his old co-worker. Who's, who's kind of a dick in the original film, I think, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm trying to remember Didn't he murder name. a bunch of people? He did, he did. I don't he was uh, not great. He's very gruff here, too, so <laughs> he didn't yeah. mellow out all that much. He just sort of got old. He's like, yeah, you know, he's there's no way to contact him. He's retired, <laughs> which usually means dead. So we don't really yeah, know if Deckard know. is alive or not at this point. <laughs> I found that I found that wording really interesting too. I was like, that's a very surely that's very purposeful. Like they know what retire yeah. means in this film. You know, they wear Blade Runner. Surely they know what retired means, right? Like they're the ones <laughs> who were retiring. So. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, maybe my one critique of this movie is the lingo sometimes gets a little bit confusing. Not so much as from like a understanding what's going on standpoint, but from more of a like, oh. which is, is, there's no oh. like, di- there's no like set dictionary. Like the, no one is saying thick milky a second time, like retired is no, used I in totally, two different contexts. <laughs> I totally agree. You know, sometimes a lot of the language is pretty dense. It's pretty thick milky. Um, you know, <laughs> I... I, I <laughs> I'm going to uh, use that now as much as possible. Oh no, Tim. Oh. <laughs> this is the worst possible thing that could have happened. Because <laughs> this oh, is going to be yeah, the thing that everyone hard. remembers from this podcast now. It's not going to be your insightful, you know, insight into like, insightful insight. It's not going to be your uh, no, thoughtful discussion of the movie. No, be... no, no. It's, <laughs> it's going to be... I, I get it, it'd be, and it'd be really awful if, you know, we have all this insight, and suddenly uh-huh. everyone just comes away from this, and they just think, man, that was really thick milky. Like, <laughs> that... <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Um, I'm gonna try and continue to scrub... I'm not gonna be able to now, because we've talked about it twice, but I'm gonna continue attempting to scrub <laughs> the idea of thick milky from my brain by just powering through more of the plot. Um, so after Kay heads off, Love reports to Wallace, who proceeds to do the first of many scenes where he will wax poetic about his replicants uh this time about the new model that is being quote-unquote born because it it, the scene in which the new model is ready is where this woman is essentially dropped out of what looks like an egg sack uh, oh oh very damp it's so uncomfortable to watch (laughs) it's a little gross it kind of looks like like when sharks are born um, that might be too niche for this, but <laughs> does it? That's very specific. That you know what it looks like when sharks well, are born. Like Is that the, what they look like? It's like it's like fish have those like egg sacs they attach to kelp and stuff. I don't know if it's shark specifically or if it's just sort of like a fish thing. But you know, then they pop out of the egg sac, and that's sort of what this looked like. I'm not gonna tell people who are listening to this podcast to Google sharks being born, but like if you wanted to check me on that, you could, I guess. <laughs> if you, if you... <laughs> I find, like, Wallace, like, he's such an awful character. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he does so little in the film. That was actually another thing that I really liked, is that uh, oftentimes when they come back with sequels, you know, there's this temptation to make them bigger and better and less intimate. Or, mm-hmm. like, and, and one of the ways they could have done that is, oh, they're starting a revolution story. Right. And, like, I mean, there is actually a little bit of that later on, but it's so underplayed. It's in, like, one scene, and then we move on from it. Mm-hmm. And one thing they could have done is have Wallace be like this villain that they're going to overthrow, they're going to destroy, destroy the Wallace Corporation. 
but it's just it, 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 he's just a part of this world a part of the story it doesn't go anywhere near that it stays way focused on the important questions around k which i really really liked yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I also like that I didn't have to watch Jared Leto's acting for too, too long because I'm not sure. My impression of Jared Leto is pretty much like this guy is only ever doing the bare minimum amount of acting in any given scene. And this is just how he is as a person normally, like waxing poetic about fear when you're first born and things. I uh, <laughs> I have heard that he's not, he, that he did some weird stuff around Suicide Squad, but that's yeah. the extent of my knowledge of him. Yeah, he freaks me out, which kind of makes him a good choice to play Wallace in this film because he has very little screen time to come across as an extremely creepy man, and he pulls it off. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how much who he thinks of himself of as God. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he goes to his friends and and his friends turn up to a party and then uh, and then he says an angel should never enter enter the kingdom of heaven without a gift and they're like oh well screw uh, it Jared I'm not coming back then yeah he's like, I bought a right, Jared I'll take enough. my like five buck Chuck wine and I'll leave you can <laughs> I thought this would be good enough for you Jared <laughs> yeah apparently not. You know, it's like, yeah. no, what do you need? You need to bring me your firstborn child. <laughs> <laughs> Announce yourself with horns or do not enter my abode at all. Um, he sort of uh, <laughs> kind of lays out his villainous motivation in the scene, too, as he's sort of examining the new model. He's talking about how he thinks that humanity should own the stars, not just have traveled to nine planets, and how society has sort of lost its stomach for slaves unless they're engineered, but he can only make so many replicants at a time because they are unable to recreate themselves. So he's looking for mm. the ability to have replicants give birth to more replicants and proceeds to stab the new model in the stomach, killing her and talks, you know, he's like, this is a, a sign of his frustration with the whole not being able to have replicants that can give birth thing. He's like, you know, especially because the Tyrell Corporation had figured it out, but the secret was lost at the blackout. Wallace is then very interested in finding the child that Kay is also looking for, uh, and he sends love to go and bring him the child. Uh, back yes. on to grimy, grimy city streets. Gotta love them. Uh, holograms are dancing, and folks are sort of milling around a sci-fi food court, where Kay is also hanging out, uh, having a meal, and looking over some of the photos of the tree where they found Rachel's bones. Um, at a nearby brothel, there's a, a woman in black who asks a few of the prostitutes to sort of go over to Kay and find out what he knows and refers to Kay as the man who killed Sapper, so she knows a little bit about him. Two of the girls get immediately scared off because he's a Blade Runner, but one stays, apparently unfazed, and they talk about the dead tree a bunch. Uh, but she walks away when the Wallace jingle plays. Tim, if you could do the Wallace jingle for us, please. Dum, dum, da, dum, dum, dum. There we go. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, and she's like, oh, right. okay. I should be hired. I want, I want Wallace to <laughs> yes. hire me. It's just... Next time they do a, uh, we just do redub the Blade Runner 2049 film. And every time the Wallace jingle we'll plays, we'll change. just put in. <laughs> <laughs> just that. That's the only change we'll make. No, no, no. And one other change, which is that they use thick milky at every possible <laughs> Every possible yeah, moment. We'll, at, we'll, at the end of lines, we'll just tack on audio of the two of us saying thick milky, <laughs> like poorly edited. <laughs> Incredible. But she she's sort of like, oh, I get it. You don't like real girls and like walks away. Kay returns to Sapper's farm, which is now covered in all sorts of crime scene tape uh, and notices that there is one key on the piano that is permanently indented and doesn't make any sound when he hits it. 
Uh, and when he looks inside the piano, he finds a tin containing a very tiny, very old sock that uh, presumably a child would wear, and a photo um, of a woman holding a baby standing in front of the tree. When Kay goes outside and looks at the base of the tree, he notices a series of numbers carved into it, 61021, and has this flashback to quickly, quickly cut in image of flames and a wooden horse. Um, it's cut in very quickly, which is Really nice screen language to let us know that it's sort of like an intrusive an intrusive thought or intrusive memory for Kay and also for us, the audience. It's very sudden. It doesn't give you a lot of time to digest it, which is good because Kay doesn't have a lot of time for that either since he actually reacts to this image. Uh, <laughs> gasping. <laughs> good for you, Kay. <gasps> exactly. Uh, unsettled, he's kind of alone in this vast, empty farm. Just him and the, the series of numbers, 6, 10, 21. Uh, but back at the LAPD, Love has busted into the morgue and she's shoving the bones of Rachel into a bag when the coroner comes back in. The coroner's name is Coco, which is yeah. important. Oh, his death is... I don't know what she does, but it it seems yeah, shoved down my spine. Does she, like, shove <laughs> his, his, the back of his spine through his throat or something? Yeah, so he's like, hey, uh, you can't take those bones out of here. And she's like, no, it's fine. I have the proper paperwork for bone removal. Uh, and as he's looking at a sheet of paper, she goes behind him and hits his neck in such a way that he's like bleeding out the front of his face. It's very gross. And yeah, uh, oof. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Also, he was he one of the, he did he say anything mean before? Like, should we feel bad about it? He said he, something mean. Uh, he called Kay a Skinner, but then immediately apologized for it. So he's on the fence. He's, uh, he's on the fence. All right. Okay. He's on the fence. Yeah. So we're like, he doesn't have a lot time. going on. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair. Fair. All right. Yeah. Uh, love pretty much every time that she kills somebody is very brutal about it. Um, in contrast to kind of the very poised personality she has when she's in Wallace's office. And I really liked that about her character it's sort of like oh yeah as you true. mentioned she's very she's very childlike in her adoration of wallace and that sort of like impulsiveness outside of the view of her quote-unquote parent is kind of helps reinforce that of course it's much more lethal in this instance because she is a um synthetic human with super strength but anytime that she's about to fuck someone up she's really gonna fuck them up and uh she yeah. will not hold back in how much she is willing to go how far she is willing to go there in the chief's office the chief is like okay coco is dead and then uh <laughs> which is when we learn that his name is coco <laughs> no, no no don't we get the name don't we get the name coco earlier i think we get the name coco earlier I oh, I so. don't know. I think this is not an important enough detail to bring up. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. No, it's not. It's, it's, I mean, that's, what, what are we here for if not just suggesting them? We've been on Thick Milky for like 30 minutes. I feel like we can take a different. It's an important, <laughs> it is an important detail. <laughs> We don't want that to get lost. We don't want that to, to you know, people to get lost in the thick milky. Mm -hmm. We need the thick milky mm -hmm. to be there. <laughs> so she she's like, Kay, I need good news. What have you found? And he sort of fills her in on the sock and the date. And she asks, like, do you know if it's a birth date, a death date? And he's like, I don't know, man. It's a series of numbers. It's a leap that we're even assuming it's a date at all. Yeah. She's concerned about this story breaking out into the world. She's like, man, this thing's going to get out and cause all sorts of chaos. And um, she and Kay sort of chat about how about him and how all his memories are all implants and not real. She's like, you know, some, it's with some replicants, you can tell. But with you, it's really hard to be like, wow. This yeah. And she person. says here, she says with you, I sometimes forget that, like, you're not human, which is like this weirdly paradoxical statement. 
that like mm -hmm. I sometimes forget that you're human and I treat you as human. I come and have a drink with you. I sit around and treat you like a friend sometimes that I forget that. And it's like, ah, oh, but I have to remind myself that actually you're subhuman. And it's because, mm -hmm. again, humanity is this constructed thing that we see in others and treat in others in this film. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, the act of being treated as more human, you act more human and you become more human. It, ultimately, this idea that there is a, a line between the two of them with her, you know, it's a, it's a fiction. A fiction that she has to choose to believe. You know, it's a fiction that she has to remind herself of. It's also good to, I mean, obviously it's morally ambiguous in how you want to interpret that line, but as far as the humans in this film are concerned, it's one of the moments where we kind of endear this particular character to us a little bit as the audience. A little bit. I mean, obviously, a little bit. As much as any character in this movie besides, like, Kay and Joy is going to get endeared to the audience. I feel like we're endeared to Dickard. Yeah, like, like Deckard, I think gets a, a little bit of endearment just from. He's got a dog. Residual. Anyone who has got a, a dog, dog, we must love. He's, <laughs> he's got a dog, so we gotta love him. And he's kind of just like grumpy old man played by Harrison Ford. So there's already a bit you know, of a baseline. Ha like, Harrison yeah, Ford's like key role, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and he's also a character from the previous movie, so there's a lot of residual. If you, if you've seen Blade Runner, you're probably gonna be like, "Ha ha, Deckard, super exciting." Also, Sepper Morton has, like, an un uncanny amount of character for someone who's on screen for five five minutes. Yeah, right? Dave Bautista, he really, like, he really bit into that part. He was like, oh, I'm going to get killed off in the opening sequence? I'm going to make everybody love me and my goddamn bugs first. And he did so well! <laughs> so good! Dave Bautista's agent, maybe they do so well because Dave Bautista's just that good at adapting to whatever role you put him in. Um, maybe, yeah. Important in this conversation also is she and Kay are chatting about how all of his memories, since he's a replicant, are implants. They're not real um, because he was never a child. He was not born. He was built. But she asks him to tell her about one of those memories. And he walks her through the story about a wooden horse toy that he had when he was a kid with an inscription on the bottom of it. And how in this memory, a group of boys were trying to take it away from him. And he was running and looking for a place to hide it. And the only place he found that he could was a dark, old, um, turned-off furnace. And though he was very afraid, he went in and hid it. And despite the boys beating him up to try and get its location, he never gave it up. And, you know, she interprets this as like, oh, young Kay fighting for what's his. A very, like, wholesome childhood story. But Kay seems a little bit disturbed by it as much as, you know, Kay ever seems disturbed by anything. Uh, mm -hmm. He goes to the... DNA archive to start looking into children born on 6 10 21 looking for any sort of anomaly in the records uh and we get of course the Wallace jingle to let us know that Joy is there dun, and dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yes exactly she's there to keep him company as he looks through these records and we get like this parallel between the ACTG of our DNA and the 01 binary code of Joy uh, yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, rural code deep down. What are we if not for a series of letters? And importantly, also in this conversation, she says, you know, there's something you left out in that memory. What was inscribed at the bottom of the wooden horse was the same sequence of numbers you're looking into now, the 6, 10, 21. Um, mm. as, he, as Kay points out, that is a dangerous coincidence. And this is the first scene where Joy is going to suggest that, you know, this is how Kay is special. She straight up suggests, like, you are the child that you're looking for. And he points out, you know, if this is true, I'm going to be hunted for the rest of my life. So there's the beginning of this conflict in the movie between uh, something that could potentially make Kay 
special, but would also unseat his entire life as he knows it and put a, a permanent target on his back. Uh, I also thought it was interesting in this scene how when he's interfacing with this DNA bank, all the responses are in Japanese. And I have to wonder that if the release of this movie in Japan, they changed it so that it was in a different language or if it was just... <laughs> no no i don't i don't think so um because he he does speak japanese if like the yeah it's not really clear in here but everyone seems to speak japanese as well mm-hmm. um uh, what like i i think that that that's like a cornerstone of you know cyberpunk imagery is that there's this uh, interface between japanese and american culture mm-hmm. I, I i really liked this scene i felt found it was really interesting there's actually one line which is really curious where Joy suggests that he is, uh, he's, he's the baby. But how she says mm-hmm. it is she says, of woman born, which is a very weird way to phrase it. Yeah. it. It's not a phrase we would ever use. And do you know where that phrase kind of is most associated with? Tim, you are talking to a former theater kid here. I promise. I was you. thinking that is, yeah, I was, that is I was from like, the like, Scottish <laughs> play itself. You know, that is That's that is from our our McBoy himself. I'm not going to say the name of the play because I, there's You're very few superstitions that I keep up. But I, you know, I consider my home my theater now, and I don't want to jinx myself. Have you have it. you seen have you seen Blackadder? I don't mean to tangent, but have you seen Blackadder? I haven't. No. Okay. There's a there's a very famous episode about the Scottish play where uh, every single time a character says Macbeth, the character, like, the, these these theatre uh, actors, like, do this big ritual thing. It's very funny. It's very good. Anyways, that's <laughs> yes. obviously, it's from Macbeth, which mm-hmm. uh, the, the guy who it turns out to be that kills him is born by what? What is, how is he born? Well, Tim, he's born by C-section. That's exactly. right. Exactly. He circumvents being of woman born by being born by yeah. cesarean section. <laughs> Worst twist ever, but... <laughs> Like, <laughs> C-section, how does that connect with the baby in 2049? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Tim. <laughs> the baby in 2049 is also bored by cesarean oh, section. <laughs> whoa, we got it, yeah. Uh, Home run. I, I'm pointing that out for the audience, because mm-hmm. the, the not everyone's No, it's very important. Gonna, gonna get that. But again, it's like, of woman born, the reference itself is like, to a deconstruction of what it means to be born. So mm-hmm. it's taking it one step, which is, oh, you need to pass through the vaginal canal and then turn it into a C-section. And then of course, take it back even further and you can be constructed. You can be uh, manufactured in, in, in a certain way. Uh, is it to do mm-hmm. with the code, the ACTG or the zero one? Is there really a line between them? Like, again, it's just deconstructing his ideas of what it means to have a soul. Cause it's about deconstructing ideas of associating birth itself with the soul. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's really fascinating. It's it's such an easy line to miss, but it connects so much thematically to the movie that I think it's it's definitely. I'm glad you pointed it out and we went on that tangent because it's uh, I didn't even flag that in my head. <laughs> thank <notes>. you, <laughs> thank you for your thank you for your expertise on the Scottish play. Oh, of course. Any any, I am so happy every time a movie makes a, even the vaguest of Shakespeare references because I spent far too much of my youth well, there's, thinking there's about a, Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> there's a couple more Macbeth references in 2049 as well, mm-hmm. which is um not not by coincidence, I should suspect. No, there's a lot of Frank Sinatra and a lot of uh, McNope. Um, so as I, is sort of wait, what what what's, what's Frank Sinatra got to do with Shakespeare? Well, he's he just uh, Summer Wind plays a bunch in this movie. There's a lot of, and then Frank Sinatra appears in hologram form uh, later on. 
It doesn't have Wait, anything to do with Shakespeare. Isn't there it's just Elvis movie Presley? There's Elvis Presley, and then there's the jukebox, which is Frank Sinatra. Right. I, I, okay, to be clear, I know nothing about music. So I don't know what Summer <laughs> Wind is about, and I don't know the lyrics, and I don't know its relevance to the story. So if you have experience uh, on that, I'm very curious. Yeah, Summer Wind is what's playing in the uh, scene when he goes home to Joy for the first time. It's just, it's sort of just setting the mood of a uh, the 50s household there. I, I personally don't know enough about the song to be able to comment on its oh, uh, thematic use. Um, it's more just the reoccurrence of Frank Sinatra to kind of connect back to peaceful times with joy more so than I would say anything is necessarily informing beyond that in the story. Right, right, right. Also, in this scene, do um, there's a reference to the kid dying from Galatians syndrome, which again, mm. I found very strange because, like, it, we don't have... Galatians syndrome doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Right. But Galatians is a very very particular word and this this film is filled with religious imagery of various kinds religious terminology like the, the wallace literally says an angel should not enter heaven without a gift do you dare come from i am a god you know um I, like and so so every single time i see religious references i'm like okay there's got to be a purpose behind that galatian mm-hmm. syndrome is reference to the book of galatians and I did a little reading on this. A bunch of people have a bunch of different theories. But, so Galatians is a a book that talks about how Christians don't need Mosaic law to necessarily be Christians. That's Old Old Testament Hmm. law as much. But can express it necessarily through virtues. There's lines about, you know, uh, that we we shall know Christians by their compassion and love and kindness and that sort of stuff. And Mm -hmm. so there's this... There's this distinction being made between kind of Christians of the law and Christians of kind of like the virtue. Mm-hmm. It may be, it could be theoretically a reference to the idea that like K doesn't need to be a human by the kind of quote law, which is being born, being conceived, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And neither does a soul require it. That the soul and humanity are things constructed and acted upon, acted out um acted treated and 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 played not uh things that are by a strict set set of criteria that you have to 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 to, uh kind of reach before you do anything yeah i just kind of tie into that um so as they're having as the scene goes on of course uh Kay finds two identical dna records one boy and one girl uh and he explains you know no humans can have the exact same set of dna so one of these must be a copy um, they're both processed. Don't the same twins orphanage. have the same DNA? That was my first thought too. I guess if I don't know if fraternal twins have, would have the exact same DNA. Identical twins, I assume, would. Identical twins do share the same DNA as each other. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the twins don't exist anymore. Twenty forty nine. They just all died out. The twins. Yep. There's no more twins. They got lost in the thick no movie. We, we haven't seen them since. They got. Um, <laughs> That's so uh, bad. Oh. <laughs> this is what this, this is what we've wrought, to Tim. This is this is what we've chosen to harp on, and we must live with our choices. But of course, this is where we learn that the girl uh, was recorded Continue. as having 
<laughs> the girl is recorded of having uh, died of a genetic disorder, uh, Galatian syndrome, where the boy has just sort of disappeared. So Kay sets off for the orphanage, hoping to find records of the boy. Rain pours down, as it always does, over the municipal waste processing area, a sea of trash and parts and things. Kay and Joy are kind of flying low when someone begins to fire at him and a very innovative sci-fi weapon, a harpoon with a kite attached, hits the back of his car, oh, and as he so flies cool. higher up, the lightning in a nearby storm strikes the kite, Benjamin Franklin style, and like fries his car, sending him into free fall, which is so cool. What? It had yeah. they could have just shot him with a blaster and this movie said, no no no. No 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 no. We need Hear a kite out. lightning strike. We're gonna weaponize a kite. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. It's great, and it, it you know helps us set up that these people who are shooting at him are like scavengers, because that's kind of a very makeshift weapon that they got going on there. Yeah, it's like a harpoon gun. Yeah. <laughs> got a little Moby Dick on us here. Um, <laughs> Kay slams into a pile of trash on the ground, and he's sort of like out cold for a minute. As the scavengers approach his car, uh, rousing him from his sleep, he gets out, and it looks like a few of them are going to attack him, but he's able to fight them off and sort of keep everyone at bay before love starts bombing them. Uh, bombing these scavengers from the safety of her office while getting her nails Literal done missiles. <laughs> Literal missiles. She's just like, fire again. Over to the left. Fire again. Fire. <laughs> like, oh, okay. She's like, really a bad bitch. She sort of zooms in on Kay and she's like telling him to, whispering to herself, speaking towards him, although he can't hear her, you know, get up and do your fucking job. Go find the child. So she's using his investigation to sort of aid her own. Yeah. Kay launches his car drone, which is this little like drone that comes out of the roof of his car and tells it to watch the car, which was very cute. And then sets off walking over the mounds of trash. Drone, drone is best boy. Drone is best boy. There is a dog in this movie, but the drone is also a best boy. The drone is the real, the real MVP. Yeah, yeah. The drone really. The drone survives so much more than I expect the drone to. That is <laughs> the drone, true. I think the drone outlasts. So I think, yeah, it's outlasts the ship. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, uh, spoilers. spoilers. Spoiler alert. I guess if you're <laughs> if you're this far into the podcast and still trying to keep any illusions of. Uh, <laughs> not hearing the plot of Blade Runner 2049. He finds the orphanage, which is a Thunderdome-looking structure, which is very Mad Max of them. I don't know what a Thunderdome is. I haven't seen Mad Max. Uh, it's a big dome where a lot of cars and dudes in leather vests fight each other, and there's a cool announcer in it. It's also the title of one of the Mad Max movies. That's that's really all the info that you need. <laughs> oh, you get a right. little, like, oh, okay. Welcome okay. to the Thunderdome sort of thing. Inside the orphanage, there's all these very quiet children who lead him into open workshop where the owner, Mr. Cotton, is yelling at all the kids to get to work. At first, Mr. Cotton thinks that Kay is there to adopt one of the kids, but when he flashes his LAPD badge, uh, the guy panics, is like, you can't shut me down. People better than you have tried to shut me down. But Kay is just like, dude, just show me your records. Uh, and though he's resistant at first, Kay, of course, is able to threaten him. They begin walking off towards Mr. Cotton's office. As they're heading that way, they pass by furnaces that Kay recognizes from his memory. Hmm, mm. interesting. Oh, yeah. those shouldn't be perfect. It's such... What a what a dangerous coincidence we found ourselves upon, Mr. Kay. <laughs> uh, Cotton... <laughs> Cotton goes through his logs, but the year of the child's record is missing, uh, and he sort of runs out of the room like, oh, please don't hurt me. 
Uh, but before Kay leaves the orphanage, he sort of starts walking into the furnaces, following the steps from his memory. And something I thought that they was did in the scene that was really cool is that the first couple shots we see of Kay walking through these this furnace structure are the same shots that we saw in the memory flashback earlier. But instead of the young boys running through, now, of course, we've got the grown-up Kay walking oh, those that's same interesting. steps. I hadn't noticed that before. One thing that I, I've only got really one note for this sort of scene, which is that... Uh, mm-hmm. As he's heading towards the furnaces and he makes this discovery that you're about to talk about, the music mm-hmm. is really ominous. Like, yes. it's like very, very haunting because it's like this world-breaking, identity-breaking discovery. And I guess like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like maybe learning something like that would be that sort of world-shattering, like even if it's a kind of good thing. You know? Yeah, so what Kay does is he goes to the furnace where he remembers hiding the wooden horse and he finds it. He finds the real wooden horse, which of course raises the question of if these memories are fabricated, how could this horse that indicates this actually happened be here? And that's when the kind of the ominous music swells. And I, I, I think it kind of, the music is more informing us about what Kay is thinking because he's also emoting a lot in this scene more than he does in others he's he's shaking mm. he's like quivering because i think he's genuinely afraid of what the ramifications of this could mean for him in his life because as he sort of hinted at in the scene with joy um i'll be hunted for the rest of my life he'll be hunted yeah. for the rest of his life and that is something that would inspire fear in most people i feel like so i could kind of understand how they're kind of this revelation is frightening and the music is reflecting that even if it is mm. Potentially also a good thing uh, in helping him sort of discover his humanity. Yeah. I guess I just, I quite liked that difference. Because, like, it is it is technically on some level a chosen one story, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, on some, on some level. Like, it's not, you know, you wield the magical weapon to defeat the Dark Lord chosen one story. But it is, right. <laughs> it is as it turns out, like, you are the messiah figure who will lead us to freedom story at one mm-hmm. point, sort of, maybe not really. And a lot of stories would have that moment where they re- where they sort of revel in being the chosen one is sort of this heroic, amazing realization, at least kind of like disbelief, but disbelief from the sense of like me, why would it ever be me? But they come sort of like, they're kind of, they're fine with it. But this is like a, it's a lot more complicated feelings mm-hmm. around being that. And I, I really, I really liked that. Yeah, I, I think this scene is, uh, it's really impactful. And I think it's also one of the most insightful into Kay's particular emotional reaction to a lot of what he's discovering because a lot of scenes where even scenes where Kay is learning about himself he's very reserved this is one of the few times he's able to express himself uh physically and through the music here yeah yeah definitely uh he returns home to joy puts the wooden horse on the table and she's like you you were born you weren't made this horse was hidden with care and it proves that your memory is real and she's like you know you're a real boy so you need a real name and uh calls him joe which he's uh reluctant to at first he's like you know how how can i know that this memory is an implant or not and sort of brushes her off and she's like well you know you have to figure out who makes the memories we go to this lush forest in stark contrast to contrast to everything we've seen full of life and it's like having your uh, your like your vision like died after watching this you're like oh my gosh i didn't realize what colors were after yeah. all this time oh yeah uh i've never been so excited to look at a bug before <laughs> i know and you're like oh my gosh it's it's blue i see blue <laughs> uh someone who's 
a, a woman, Dr. Anna Staline, is in there uh, programming a bug. Uh, and as Kay enters the room, this sort of holographic forest and all these exciting, exciting colors fade away. Evaporates. Like our evaporate. happiness in this film. <laughs> they disappear into the ether. A thin wall of glass or plastic separates Kay and Anna, and she sort of explains, I have an immune system that's compromised, and I live in this bubble now, like the boy in the bubble. You know that movie? I think it was John Travolta, wasn't it? We had to live in the bubble the whole time because he had a compromised immune system. It's it's that again. Uh, it's a different movie entirely. She oh, thank asked... you. I was, I was confused for a second. It might be this <laughs> film. That John Travolta is the boy in the bubble. John Travolta is playing, of course, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Anna Staline. <laughs> John Travolta uh... is Anna Staline. <laughs> In our in our remake of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, where we add more thick milky and uh, add, right. redub all of the <laughs> Wallace, I can totally jingles. imagine John Travolta saying thick milky. Like if any actor is gonna say thick milky, <laughs> oh, it's no. John Travolta. Oh, you're so right. You're so right. <laughs> <laughs> so she she continues working and is sort of programming a, a birthday party as the two of them chat. Kay asks her about her work and she's like you know to make authentic memories you have to uh have real human responses um but it's illegal oh. to use real memories so it's not about using real ones she's like in order you have to, you recall with your feelings so it's about the detail she makes memories that then the wallace corporation puts into the replicants essentially is her job i don't know if i covered that yeah that yeah also like this this scene is as close as the film gets to like hitting you over the head with a hammer about what it's about mm -hmm. so that line it's better than nice it feels authentic and if you have authentic memories you have real human responses oh my gosh i'm so happy i wrote down notes for this i would have been lost <laughs> if i didn't have them but like if you if it feels authentic and if you have authentic memories you have real human responses like the point of this is that it doesn't matter if it's fake in some way. That that the mm -hmm. authenticity of something doesn't come from whether it's constructed, it comes from whether or not it's felt. It comes from whether or not it's acted upon, it comes from whether or not it impacts us, it comes from whether or not we treat it as real and it feels real to us. And mm -hmm. it's just it ah, uh, it's it's the same thing as constructed meaning, you know. Yes. That 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 these things which are constructed can have genuine meaning and genuine impact on the world even more so than the, quote, real people. Yeah, and uh, I, I like this scene on a, a narrative level for a number of reasons. A lot of what you just mentioned is, it, it's the most overtly thematic of the movie, but also what happens is, you know, Kay is like, hey, I need you to look at this memory to tell me if it's real or not. And we don't cut to the memory. Uh, we have to assume it's the horse furnace one. And we just stay on close-ups of Kay and Dr. Anna. Anna, of course, begins to tear up and cry having a real emotional reaction to the memory, declaring that someone lived this, this memory was real, and Kay acknowledges for the first time out loud, like, I know it's real, acknowledging that he knows it really happened, and fully freaks out, showing the most emotion he has all movie. The first time I watched this movie, this scene, I took it at face value, you know, Kay is confirming that, you know, this is a real memory that he lived, but uh, later on there is a, a twist of the movie that we'll get to that recontextualizes this scene and what information you can get from it uh, towards the, the, the true ending of uh, the movie, which I, we'll, we'll kind of circle back around to this, I think, when we get to the, the end there, because it's... Yeah. I don't want to spoil also, the twist just yet. No, I won't bring it out now. Um, also, when he says, like, I found that line... Oh, so she says, you know, we recall with our feelings and anything real should be a mess. She also says, you know, like, how do you tell if, if, if a memory is fake? So he goes, people think it's about detail. 
but she says we record without mm -hmm. feelings, anything real should be a mess. Which again, it's breaking the sense of reality uh, and, and from, from, I mean, I hate to use this term, but like facts and feelings. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, so we, we've got the idea that again, memories are real dependent on, uh, memories are not real because they're detailed or like, because they necessarily actually happened to you, but because they you feel them mm -hmm. and you act upon them. And that's how you can tell a, you can tell a real memory. So it's like it's like even though oh well, no we won't we we'll get into that even won't get into, we'll get into that later. <laughs> that's part of the spoilers. Yes. Conti yes. Continue. <laughs> Spoiler warning. Yes. Uh, so Kay leaves the lab and he stands outside in the snow before being confronted by some cop cars and pulled back into the station. He takes the same sort of baseline test from uh, earlier in the movie, but this time he's not even close to his baseline and he's brought in to meet with the chief. She's like dude, what is it with you? And he reveals that he, he, he tells her uh, that he found the child who was set up like a replicant on a service job and that what she asked was done, implying that he has already killed the child. Although what we know, the audience knows, is that he has discovered the child is him. <laughs> she says that she can help him get out of the station alive, but that he has to nail his next baseline test in 48 hours. Kay gets sent back out into the streets, returning to his building and telling Joy that she was right about everything. And as they talk, the uh, prostitute from earlier shows up. Joy's like, I called her. And the scene is very visually cool. And I'm going to try and describe it as best as I can, but I highly recommend that if you want to you just look it up because it's got a lot of very trippy uh holographic effects going on joy's like i i want to you know be there for you um and she syncs up with the woman sort of stepping back to occupy the same space as her and joy's face and image is sort of superimposed over the other woman so that she has a physical form in a sense but the whole time that she moves there's like a slight echo from where her hand motions are as joy is slightly delayed in her sync from the motions that the woman is making mm. it's, it's there's very... like two people moving within the same space like a couple of centimeters apart yes exactly um yeah like a, a visual echo uh in, in a sense and it's a very tender scene they take the opportunity to make out a bunch and then we kind of hard cut to an advertisement for a joy not this joy but a joy hologram uh and we get the line of course she's anything you want her to be she's anywhere you want her to be the next morning as the prostitute is getting dressed to leave she puts a little device into the pocket of Kay's jacket um before joy is like you can go now Kay mm -hmm. talks to joy a bunch about how they'll be coming after him soon and he's getting ready to leave joy says that she needs to be moved to the emitter and off of the console because if they come looking at his apartment they'll have access to her memories and he's like, but if I do that, if something happens to this emitter, you'll be gone for good. She's like, oh, just like a real girl. Um, so now they're both sort of... She's becoming more tied to like that conventional idea of human that someone's born and dies. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like they attach humanity to birth and death. But I, I think there's a crucial distinction here, which is that even though they attach, like much in the same way that Kay attaches being a soul to, to being born, they attach humanity to being to, to, to birth and death. But it's not it's not actually the birth and death that makes them real, but it's like the wanting and acting upon birth and death. It's that mm -hmm. it's that role playing with birth and death almost. Yeah, it's a, a reoccurring idea in a number of stories about how it's the the finite nature of life that gives it meaning and it sort of plays on that idea here as if if you know that your mm. consciousness can come to an end, it makes what you're doing with that consciousness more meaningful. And in, in Joy's case, you know, she may not necessarily be dying in the traditional sense, but 
the risk yeah. to her is becoming more real than earlier in the movie when we saw her emitter get damaged. She was still able mm. to reappear fine in the apartment. It's, there's no save point anymore for her, just as no. there's no save point for anyone in this world. <laughs> Unless yeah. someone's got some new technology that I am very much not aware of, but I assume that we would have heard something about that. <laughs> if, there is if a, the, there's uh... a Rick and Morty episode about, uh, about, there's a Rick and Morty episode about them inventing a save point machine. It's quite funny. Mm. Yeah, there's like a there's like I think it's an Adam Sandler movie actually where he's got a remote control click. that allows him to control click. the click. Yeah, <laughs> click. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, it's very it's not the quite the click approach, but it's a similar concept. Joe transfers to transfers her to the emitter and breaks the transmitter antenna so that they can no longer be tracked. And as he does so, Love notices it go dark and takes off in pursuit. They go to a, a lab or a shop of some sort where the wooden horse is being scanned and identified by a scientist who is played by the guy who played one of the Somali pirates in uh, Captain Phillips. A movie that oh nobody gosh, has seen, but everyone knows the one line from that was in the trailer. <laughs> I'm the captain now. Exactly. It's the guy who says that. Uh, he's yeah. in this movie. Uh, <laughs> I never made that connection. I nearly watched Captain Phillips last night for the first time. It's so okay. Weird it's that that connection has just been mad made. Yeah, well, if you watch it now, you'll be able to be like, hey, it's the guy from Blade Runner. <laughs> it's the you know, guy it's from the, that the one other. scene in Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, he offers to buy the horse for a real horse. Um, so he, he scans the, the wooden figure, and he's like, oh, this is real wood, which is very valuable. Uh, it's very old, and it's got this radiation from a particularly dirty kind of bomb. There's only one place where that kind of radiation and that sort of dirtiness can be found, and no one lives there now. Meanwhile, Love goes to Kay's apartment and finds it abandoned. The pursuit is on. Kay begins to <laughs> fly his drone, Old Faithful, through what it is a very stark orange dust-filled landscape. Yes. They get uh, a lot of game? long contemplative shots <laughs> yeah. of this landscape. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Why the big statues? I can't figure it out because I uh, I don't know if it's like an iconic LA, uh, uh, Las Vegas landscape or something, but like I've been trying to think about why are there these giant yeah. statues of naked people and like in these very weird positions, you know, like reaching and grabbing. And I've been trying to find if there's a meaning to it because it spends so long so of us looking long. at these statues and this bizarre place. And I don't know what it is. Do you have any idea? I do not know enough about uh, Las Vegas because this is the ruins of Las Vegas to tell you if those are statues that are really there. But from my understanding of the city, they're not. So I would assume that this is an artistic choice the movie made. Uh, what meaning those statues are supposed to have in terms of the production design, I honestly don't know. There's a lot of themes of like the construction of humanity and stuff. So part of it might just be that they're like, well, we like having a lot of human figures. We have a lot of these like neon joys throughout other backdrops and when we're in Los Angeles. So maybe it's sort of echoing that. Um, might just be like a through line in them having a lot of body models around. But I personally, like, other than it being an aesthetic choice, I, I, I don't know the meaning uh, of these statues uh, either. I don't but it, know. <laughs> I don't know. It bugs me. It bugs me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, man, it's so open-ended that there could be so many things that it means, but it makes it incredibly difficult to decide which of those meanings you want to go with. It sort of fuzzes the radar. The design of Las Vegas is also, as we mentioned, it's very, very orange. It's a, a stark color change from the city that we've been in so far, uh, Los Angeles, where it's a lot of you know bluish grays, uh, very darkly lit with neon blips. This whole 
setting is going to be lit much brighter. Uh, but and the also, dust makes the, it difficult the orange to see where it that is. you're talking about, I I'm, mm -hmm. I think might be a reference to Macbeth again. Um, oh. So I sent you an image on Twitter from oh. the twenty the twenty something uh, twenty twenty thirteen film of Macbeth, which has a very similar scene. Uh, yes. and, and it's climax with very very similar colors, and I I, it, I don't think it necessarily gets more deep than that. But um, I found I was just like there's there's, there's a few Macbeth references here uh, to uh, for whatever reasons I, I I don't know all the details and intentions that the directors or writers could have had, but I felt the connection was interesting. Yeah, I mean the, the I'll link the shot that you just sent me into the show notes below, but the shot you're describing is essentially this darker orange uh, outline of a figure walking towards us in sort of like a medium shot uh, on a, a dusty, lighter orange background, which is a shot that we will almost see exactly uh, in a few minutes in the scene here as uh, Kay begins to walk into the ruined valley of Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, it's from a cinematographer. I would be curious as to who was the cinematographer on this film. Uh, it was, it was uh, Roger Deakins, obviously. Roger, oh, Roger Deakins. Yeah. Uh, he, fun fun fact about Roger Deakins. So, um, I, I in, independently, my two of my favorite films are Arrival and Blade Runner 2049. And I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I loved them both independently. And then I found out afterwards that they had the same cinematographer and director. I just, ah, I clearly yes. have a type. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Deakins is iconic for a reason. He's oh. just great. Um, but I, I, I'm actually wondering, the cinematographer for Macbeth, um, 2013 version, because if they were... Oh, sorry. Hang on. I will look oh, it up. Good. I'm just curious, because if, if it was also Roger Deakins, that might be why there was the callback. But it's also possible that it was just a, a similar nah, it was moment of inspiration. Adam Acropore. Ah. Yeah. All right. It's just uh, convergent ideas. I think it's... I, I, I like the idea of it being a callback to that movie or at least an in, in inspiration for this particular aesthetic because it, it fits in with the, the quote from earlier. And it's also just a very cool looking shot. Like this particular, this whole sequence where he's in Las Vegas is super orange, but I think it, it works really well. I like the color grading on this movie a lot. It's, it, it's uh, pretty strictly in the blue orange line and it's highly saturated despite there not being a ton of color usually. And I think that that looks so good. And it's so nice that despite it being very dark and gritty in a lot of locations, you can still clearly see what's happening because of the way that it is colored. Because uh, a lot of times with modern sci-fi, they're like, what if we just make it super shadowy and dark and gritty and you can't see where anyone is moving around ever? And in this movie, it's like, okay, it's dark and gritty, clearly, but you can still see the outline of the figure that you need to see to understand where they're moving in the frame. And I appreciate that as someone who uh, <laughs> has to look at a lot of figures moving through a lot of frames. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm so, I wish I knew more about that sort of uh, part of the film side to, to really appreciate it more. Like, I, I appreciate mm -hmm. the sense of like, hey, it's pretty. But um, right. uh, beyond that, I'm kind of just like, oh, man, I wish I knew. Yeah, I mean, like on the basics of color theory, blue and orange are complementary. So that's part of why it's colored the way that it is. Orange is often representative of things that are otherworldly or energetic. So in this case, I think it's probably leaning more towards the otherworldly. Um, mm. whereas blue tends to either be very cold or very like gentle, in this case leaning more towards the sort of like cold harshness. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily know if the color coding in this movie is as intentional as it is in some others. I think it's more for aesthetic purposes than it is, um, narrative, 
but it's a uh, it's definitely good looking. There's a reason that it was up for <laughs> visual effects awards when it when it came out. So Kay yeah. uh, notices some life signs in the distance, and he he starts walking through the dusty ruins and arrives <laughs> at a bunch of bees. Yes, that's right, bees. I which is bees. again, there's the shot right after this where he puts his hand inside the hive, and again. I'm not quite sure why bees and why he puts his hand inside the hive. I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I guess they're uh, alive. The the thing that is notable about this location is it used to be super radiated and now it's not. And there are more animals in that there are bees and a dog. There are more living animals here than anyone has seen in their lives in this movie. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I don't necessarily know why specifically bees. Uh, he's real lucky that he's not like allergic to bee stings or something, because that would have been like the worst <laughs> mid-character <laughs> arc. <laughs> just gives an anaphylactic shock. <laughs> <laughs> Most anticlimactic um, ending ever. Yeah, but uh, we, I missed a bit here. So as Kay is setting off into the dusty landscape, at the police station, Love arrives into the chief's office, and she's questioning her about where Kay is. The chief is like, you're too late. Kay already destroyed the child. And Love gets extremely enraged. She starts crushing the like chief's fist with a glass. Like a tantrum, exactly. Yeah, it's a childlike tantrum. Yeah, she's crushing the chief's fist with a, a glass that breaks inside of it, just like pushing the glass into her hands. It's Oh, which ooh, is chilling. like, uh, that feeling. Ugh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and Very she kills him here in this moment. But an yes. interesting detail is that she cuts her, she cuts her belly in the same way that Wallace cuts the belly of the uh, replicant and kills, kills the replicant early on. Imitating the father there. Imitating. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, again, it comes from that admiration. I think she does, mm-hmm. like, cut, cut her in the belly and then stabs her or something like that. But Yeah, um, she stabs her a few times, but she starts with the belly, so. Yeah. First cut is the deepest, as that one song says. And she uses the chief's computer to track where Kay is, so she is on his, hot on his trail. Kay follows the bees and kind of looks beyond to a big, fancy, empty building, a former casino, and sort of walks inside, stepping over a tripwire through these fine rooms and now empty halls when the sound of piano music kind of draws his attention. Uh, he, he finds an abandoned piano and hits a key, letting this one loud note resonate and break the silence of the scene. The sound design in this movie is incredible. Like, Using silence effectively is hard to do, and a lot of action movies like to slam things into your ear as frequently and loudly as they can, but this movie really knows the value of having long, uninterrupted scenes of silence that are broken by a single note or a single guitar strum or some other sound before everything kind of picks up and gets more chaotic. Because it, yeah. it, it adds to the, the contemplative feel of the movie, um, but it also puts a lot of the focus onto the subtlety of um, the performance, and it forces you to focus on things beyond the sound. Because normally in a scene like Kay walking through these abandoned hallways, you'd be hearing uh, creaking sounds as he as he steps through. You'd be hearing echoes of his footsteps and things like that. And there's certainly little bits of that here, but for the most part, it's almost completely silent. And that lack of sound... Yeah, it, it brings out the emptiness and it allows you to focus on the details of the design of the room and get the context clues that you would from that production design of like how empty it is. Um, mm. And then when the one sound you do hear, the note is jarring and it kind of focuses your, focuses your attention back into the action in a way from the set pieces. 
Yeah, I love that. And I mean, we haven't quite got to it yet, but but um, when he meets and fights Dickard, there's like this real dissonance with mm-hmm. uh, between the music and sounds that's like occasionally interjecting yes. and the violence. Like you, you seem to you know, like action films continually bombard us with music, but like it, it generally tries to be music that like fits the fight beats of the of the of the fight or whatever. But like all of the fights in in this film are really, really part of their brutality. Part of that brutality is brought out by the fact that it's not like disguised by epic music or or, or like right. super tense music. Like every single hit that every the hit that it, that it carries. The punch that, mm-hmm. that it delivers is all done purely from just like how it feels and looks, and the music is 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 kind of like it's just dissonant to it. It's uncomfortably dissonant when you hear this Elvis Presley music being played overhead. Exactly. Uh, well, speaking of Deckard, uh, as Kay plays that piano note, he notices a dog off to one side and hears from behind him uh, the voice of old Harrison Ford himself asking him if he's got any cheese, a, a Treasure Island quote. And Kay turns around to see a gun pointed straight at him. Uh, Deckard, you know, asks him what he's doing here and Kay and, and identifies Kay as a cop, but Kay's like, I'm not here to take you in, I just have questions, and Deckard chooses to shoot him instead, which throws Kay over the edge of a balcony, um, but he's missing when Deckard gets down to the ground floor, hiding, and as he sneaks off, he sets off um, a trap. Uh, both Deckard and Kay sort of end up playing this cat and mouse game in a lounge that has this project- projection of musical performers, in particular Elvis, um, as you mentioned, it's kind of stuttering through the background as the two of them fight. Mm. They slug it out for a bit, uh, with every hit sort of being emphasized by the music cutting back in. Uh, Kay says the classic, I don't want to hurt you line, and Deckard responds by punching him a bunch. Uh, but Kay stops fighting back, uh, and when Elvis starts playing Can't Help Falling in Love With You, Deckard says, you know, he stops punching. He's like, oh. <laughs> I didn't even notice that detail before, but I suppose it's like him calming down. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I love this song. Why don't we get a drink instead of continuing this? And they go upstairs to the bar, grabbing a drink of whiskey, which Deckard apparently has millions of bottles of because this is the ruins of Las Vegas. So I guess they were just readily available. You would you would never run out if you had like an abandoned Las Vegas, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> There's one thing you'd never run out of. It's whiskey specifically. And bees, I guess. What? Why whiskey specifically? Like he says he's got is... a million bottles of whiskey. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, sorry. Uh, also, like, uh, also, can I just say, Harrison Ford is sometimes criticized for, like, dialing his roles in, um, you know, dialing it Mm -hmm. in for a paycheck in certain roles, but honestly, he kills, like, there is no role more Harrison Ford than the old grumpy drunk who wants to be left alone. He's one of those actors that has aged into his perfect typecast. Like, he was always kind yes. of playing, like, the grumpy guy who wanted to be left alone. <laughs> but now he's old enough that when he plays a grumpy old guy who wants to be left alone, it's he like... He is the grumpy old guy. Yeah, that's just who he actually is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just a grumpy old guy who wants to be left alone, so they just throw lines in front of him, and they're like, can you do this this time? And he's like, yeah, if it'll get you to leave me alone sooner. <laughs> but also just, like, the library's like, you know, hey, do you just want to get a drink, you know, instead? Like, that's... Yeah. Oh, it's just such a good character so moment. Good. I just know exactly who he is when he goes from punching a guy as hard as he can to just like, hey, mm-hmm. you want to get a drink? You know? <laughs> yeah, one of the strengths of this movie is how quickly they establish their characters. Even if you haven't seen the original Blade Runner, I think you can learn everything that you need to about Deckard from the short time that he is on screen here. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
He and Kay sort of chat over the drink. Kay gives his serial number when Deckard asks for his name, but Deckard's like, no, what's your real name? So Kay starts going by Joe. Um, oh, Joe I missed asks- the point. I missed the point from before. When they first meet, you know how he's like, you got a bit of cheese? Yes. Do you know, do you know why he says that? It's a Treasure Island quote. I don't know. It, yeah, it's a Treasure Island that. quote. And it's from a character called Ben Gunn, who in Treasure Island already knows where the treasure is. The treasure that all the mm. other characters are searching for. And he's been marooned on an island for a long time. Uh, I mean, it's just a clear parallel between the two characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I, I <laughs> thought was quite cool. Oh, for sure. Um, there's a lot of really great uh, literary references. I'm glad that you recognize a lot more of them than I do, because I have I had the Macbeth ones down, but other than that, it was like, okay, I have like, uh, I got Spongebob listed off, but you, you've really been coming Sponge- in clutch with covering the rest Spongebob's of them. Spongebob's <laughs> the main one. You know, Spongebob's mm-hmm, the one that mm-hmm. really matters, I think. Really important to the core theme of the movie. It's um, the one that people miss. It's the one that people yeah. miss. <laughs> yeah. Joe asks about Rachel, and Deckard sort of, like, stares angrily, not answering until Joe doubles down, and Deckard spits out what happened to the kid. Deckard is like, I was long gone by the time the child was born. I part, my part to play in hiding them was to go was into hiding vanishing. myself. Yeah. Um, and I never saw them out because... Which is really sad. His story is very tragic. Mm. And he never sought them out because they were being hunted and he didn't want them found, which is, you know makes sense based on what we know about the, so far what's been happening in this movie okay question do you think yes. Deckard is a replicant personally I had an argument with a friend the other day about whether he's a replicant and I said he has to be a replicant and mm-hmm. he said no it's it's never stated uh, I go in terms of what is actually said in the, in the movie I haven't read do androids dream of electric sheep so I can't really speak to that but in terms of like the Blade Runner movie Personally, I think it is better if he is a replicant, but I don't think it's explicitly stated at any point, so I don't know if you can definitively say he is or is not. And I think that's intentional. It's supposed to be ambiguous to let you decide. Um, but Ridley personally, Scott, uh, yeah? the director of the original film, has explicitly said on multiple occasions that he is a replicant. But like, yeah. it's it, it, in the original film, it was definitely ambiguous as to whether he is mm-hmm. a replicant. But the reason that I think he has to be a replicant in 2049 is that the story is about the ability of replicants to give birth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they symbolically attach that more to the woman than to the man, especially because maybe the man's easier to create than a woman who can give birth. But, um, mm-hmm. like, uh, D- D- Deckard being a replicant and a replicant having a child is much more significant than a human and a replicant having a child. Especially right. because he's like, we need them to be able to breed on their own. In other words, we need them to be able to, like... Uh, do replicant to replicant, not human to replicant. Right. I think I, I like the idea of him being replicant more, and uh, obviously the director has said it before, but like you said, it's it's more significant. And I also think in terms of the story of this rebellion being founded on the idea of this child, it's more significant that the replicants um, rise up under this uh, child of replicant and replicant born rather than a child of replicant and human born because if the child was half and half i feel like that has different implications within the society it's less about we are an equal group of people with real complex lives and souls and more um if we connect with humans we can become more like humans and I, i like the idea of this replicants gaining their own creating their own understanding of their own um 
humanity rather than uh, being reliant on humans to give them that humanity. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Joe puts a coin in the jukebox and some Sinatra starts playing and he finds a bunch of wooden animals next to a picture of Rachel um, from the first film with her iconic bun hair and all. As Joe and Joy and Deckard are kind of laying around and hanging out, a bunch of cars or flying cars arrive in Las Vegas and begin to lock on to targets in the hotel where they are. Uh, Decker gets this alert that someone has followed Joe and the drone kind of locks on target. They get attacked by Love and the Wallace employees. <laughs> there, Yeah, and there is actually one important moment when... Uh, sorry, I missed this in my notes. There's one important moment when Deckard and Kay are talking, and it's about the dog. Mm-hmm. It's where... He says, is the dog real? And Deckard says, I don't know, ask him. Again, it's like bringing in that subjective experience of personhood and reality, that it's like mm. people are human if they feel and express themselves as human, and that it's not like an objective criteria necessarily that we can like impose upon them and judge them from an outward uh, kind of like perspective. There's this unknowability to it that when we meet someone, we just would never know. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I really liked that because like, you know, is the dog real? I think the dog's real, and the dog looks real and feels real. Yeah. What does it mean to be real? If it looks like a dog and it acts like a dog, who's to say that it isn't a real dog? It's Schrodinger's dog. <laughs> yeah, that's what Blade Runner 2049 needed, a Schrodinger something <laughs> question. <laughs> I, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of there, Schrodinger's dog. Yeah, you know? yeah they're sort of Schrodinger's replicant, uh, <laughs> Schrodinger's dog. They The agents are able to capture Deckard as uh, Joe is severely injured by love and he tries to get up and fight but he just ends up kind of passing out Uh, (laughs) I wrote that she uses her super replicant kung fu to beat up Joe which is pretty much how love fights in close combat she's about to kill (laughs) Joe but then uh, Joy begs her to stop and instead of killing Joe she chooses to shatter Joy's emitter killing that version of Which is Joy. heartbreaking. Oh my goodness. It's, it's so, so heartbreaking. As she's I love Joy so shattered much. to Joy says like I love you and it gets cut off partway through the you and I'm like oh, oh no. That's it's brutal. It is brutal. Ooh, like the most tragic death in the movie <laughs> for sure. Easily. With the yeah. exception of Coco, you know, Coco. Yeah, Coco. oh, I mean, who? <laughs> how could we not mourn the death of the single most iconic character, Coco, who may Coco. or may not even go yeah. named until after their death? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we cut fully to black before fading up on a now dark Vegas where figures have come across the passed out Joe, um, picking up the little device that the girl placed in his pocket earlier and taking him to a campfire where he's face to face with the uh, prostitute who put the device there. The sparks of their fire turn into the lights of the city, which was a neat little transition there. Yeah. And actually there's some interesting, there's, there's some interesting details here. Like I, I don't know how intentional this was, but it's definitely something that I reflected upon in watching it recently, which is that all of the human characters. And when I say human characters, I mean the characters who are, uh, empathetic and interesting and like uh not really cruel uh mm-hmm. you know good people basically uh they are nearly always associated with the natural forces of the world 
with mm. snow. So snow would be Dr. Anna Staline. Uh, rain right. would be Joy and uh, Joy and Kay. Fire would be um, like this scene here where it moves into fire. And then you contrast that with the inhuman characters. So that's the police chief and Wallace and Love and... Um, uh, and, and stuff, and they're always associated with metal and stone and artificial light. Oh, of course, like the most iconic one being Sapper being a um, associated with the flower and the dead tree. Right. So I, I just I found that that a very interesting thing. Like obviously we I, we we like you know the natural things of the world. There's like this symbol symbolic parallel between the people who are who are more human and those who are mechanical. Like the people who are really mechanical and robotic are actually the ones who are human and the ones who are good and empathetic are the ones who we they classify as robotic replicants that sort of thing that's a really interesting parallel that i actually i didn't notice upon first viewing so i'm, I'm glad you pointed it out because you're, you're right they do they tend to associate the natural materials with the the more human and the unnatural with the less human uh coded characters mm. so in this secret bunker uh the woman wakes up joe who's still badly hurt uh, and she's like, you know, it's fine. You can trust us. And uh, Freja, who's a, a woman with a, a missing eye, which is significant because, as we know, um, the I eyes. I don't know her name actually. Yeah, the missing eyes are what the Blade Runners would take from the replicants that they retired to prove that they were retired. So the fact that she's missing one kind of implies that maybe she's faked her own death, which I thought was a really neat implication. Um, I never got that. That's so cool. Yeah, because in the first scene when he kills Sapper. Uh, K yeah, takes, takes the eye. his eye, ah. yeah. And so the fact that Fraser's got one missing is like, oh, you're up to some tricks, aren't you? She says that she's a former comrade of Sapper's, and she tells Joe that she helped him to hide the child after the child was born. She was there for the miracle. Um, the baby represents their hope for their own humanity, and the revolution is coming, and they want to free their people. So this is our group of replicant rebels here. If yeah. Joe wants to be free, he should join them. Uh, and then she... Reveals two the things great, that are important. <laughs> the great uh, horrible truth of the K. What is it? Do yes. share. She's like, yes, we have to go find her, find the child. And he's like, wait, her? That's right. The, the hidden child is not the boy that disappeared, but the girl who died. The, the record of her death was part of how they hid her. Rachel had had a daughter. It's Joe is not the child. Dun dun dun. Yeah. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Such a good twist though. Like, so I mean, good. I, I, I think, uh, I have so, so many feelings on this, but yes, please. most importantly, uh, where's my, where's the line that uh, I've got to, uh, now I'll, I'll bring that up in the next, in, the, in one of the next scenes when we, when we get to the big mm -hmm. giant joy. The fact that he thought he was human that he mm -hmm. the fact that he thought he met that standard of human that he held for himself ironically disproves that definition of humanity because upon upon, upon becoming upon believing that he is human that he was born he acted more human he acted more um he went out and, and decided to do things for his own to find his own you know uh, his own purpose uh, did things to make him happy, kind of escaped that thing. He, d he d found that he had his own sense of freedom and, and, and was unique and that sort of thing. But now that we know that, oh no, he wasn't born, it's like, oh, he can actually do all that stuff anyway. That line mm -hmm. was never there. 
that definition he had of being human and how we could act human in that way, like, it, it never meant anything in the first place. And I just love that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this film has... I mean, obviously it's got a few key theses that it's playing on for how do we define humanity, but there's many characters in this film that each have their own definition of what it means to be human, and all of them are sort of simultaneously correct and incorrect at the same time, because it's a subjective definition. There's no one correct answer to what does it mean to be human. For example, Freja here is like, you know, dying for the right cause is the most human thing that one can do, so for her it's... It's this commitment to your beliefs. A cause. Mm. A cause that gives you your humanity. You know, earlier in the movie, we hear Kay say that to be born is to have a soul. Your humanity comes from being uh, born, which the movie sort of disproves in, in going through that thesis. But it, it is another version of what gives you humanity. And I think all these different subjective ideas really helps to kind of sell the point of like, you have to decide for yourself. You have to give yourself yeah. that humanity. Um, Absolutely. And in shattering Joe's definition of what it was that was making him human, it sort of doubles down on that point, like you said, of like, he was giving himself these traits. He was deciding this for mm. himself despite not being human by his previous definition. And I, yeah, I didn't really explain really it. Interesting. I didn't really explain it very well, but I, I, I do <laughs> love how it, it, it turns on, it turns that, that expectation on his head. It's like, oh, no, I, I can actually act this way. I, I am human mm-hmm. regardless, you know. Because he, he was seeing himself as more human throughout that whole mm-hmm. period. Exactly. And he even, in the way he act, Ryan Gosling acted it too, he got, he showed more variety of expressions. Not a ton. Not a ton. It's still very stoic. Yeah. <laughs> still very minimal. More uh, in the <laughs> last hour than in the first hour of the movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, Freya's like, hey, we need to protect this child. Uh, Wallace has Deckard and they're worried that Deckard is going to lead Wallace to them and then allow him to find the child so she's like you need to go kill Deckard to keep him from leading Wallace to us and so Joe now has his last mission she sort of talks to Joe as well about like how I understand that you thought it was you and she's like we all wish that we were the child but that's why we believe in the revolution because if we all have this desire to be born then we all have this desire to have a soul. Mm. Joe also has a moment where he flashes back to uh, images of Dr. Anna kind of putting together who the actual child was because, of course, this is sort of tying back into that scene earlier in the movie where he was trying to figure out if the memory was real. The memory was real. It just wasn't his. The emotional reaction that Dr. Anna was having was because she was reliving one of her own memories, not because... Yes, uh, oh, that memory just, just being so effective, which is so oh, good. It's so good. That, it recolors oh, your expectations oh, so well. Oh. Rewatching this movie, watching this movie twice is worth it. And I, I, this is something that is one of the storytelling things that bugs me the most is when a plot twist ruins the first half of a movie. If yeah. something is just good for shock value, and then when you watch it a second time, it's not as effective. That frustrates me. Yeah. The twist of this movie makes the first half of the movie better. It, so much it better. Recolors yeah. your understanding of like who, what information you're seeing, and it, it it changes the way that the audience watches Joe go on this journey and put together the clues. And it's not a, in creating a frustration of him not seeing the correct answers. It's sort of like an understanding. Um, how do I want to explain this? Sort of um, putting the clues together for yourself and understanding how there can be two meanings or two conclusions that could be reached. Um, yeah. from the same information and it sort of doubles down on the, the idea in the movie of like having to construct your own humani- humanity Joe's constructing his own story here and it makes that scene with Dr. Anna in particular 
even more impactful when you see her start to tear up. It's, oh, 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 yeah, it's good. Absolutely. So damn good. I just, so I, I cannot recommend this movie enough. <laughs> like, <laughs> also, yeah. she says, um, she says here, she says that Frazier has a line which she says, you know, more human than humans. Which again, mm-hmm. uh, is, is like, it breaks that distinction between the biological human and the conceptual human. That right. being human is, is a, is a, is a, uh, an, almost an ideal, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost, uh, a thing you can live up to or act as, which I love that. Also, they're all standing in water, which again, to me, is a natural thing. They're all standing in a puddle of water, associating them with the natural forces of the world. I think it's interesting that uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of water in this movie. There's a lot of rain. Characters who get wet tend to be the ones who are associated with natural causes because there is, um, so we cut away from this into um, Wallace's structure in a room that has a lot of water in it, but it's all contained and surrounding this platform of stone. And you'll also notice that the light in Wallace's office comes from nowhere. Yes. Like it's, you look at it and you just, it's this very creepy unsettling place because there's, there's no sense of it being real. Like, you don't know where the light's coming from. The water just feels like this dark, deep, uncomfortable expanse. Anything could be inside there. Yes. Yeah, again, it's just this empty place despite people being in it. Yeah, speaking of people being in it, Deckard's there. He's sitting in a chair. uh, And Wallace enters and starts talking to him about how he needs (laughs) the child and quotes more scripture at him, specifically lines about Rachel, before playing some audio clips from the first movie of Deckard and Rachel talking. Wallace posits that they were brought together for a reason to make that perfect specimen uh, in order and sort of like talking at Deckard and sort of confusing him to ask him if he really knows what's real or Deckard isn't really having it. Uh, Wallace knows that Deckard doesn't know where the child is, but wants him to lead him to the others who helped to hide them. And Deckard, of course, refuses. And he does so by doing the line that, like, every parent in an interrogation scene always does, where he's like, you don't have kids, do you? Uh, always in a period. <laughs> oh, I have Ooh. millions. You're not a parent. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then Wallace goes on about how he has millions, which is so... The delivery from Jared Leto works perfectly in the scene, but it's yeah, so creepy. Yeah, it, it was context. actually very good. It's very unsettling. Yeah. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And his eyes are... Again, his eyes, so symbols of the soul in Blade Runner, and his eyes are empty. His eyes are literally yep. dark. Yep, just, they are, unfortunately, I have to use this word to describe them. They are, um, like, milky. <laughs> That's the color. <laughs> I hate they that we're circling back milky. around. They <laughs> are thick milky. I can't no! believe I missed that. I can't believe I missed that. They are genuinely I can't be- thick milky. They are, they are. It's the most accurate term oh. to describe them, and I'm so mad yes. that it's true. <laughs> oh, no. That's amazing. I love it. Uh, oh. Yeah. Wallace attempts to uh, to tempt Deckard into helping him by bringing out a familiar silhouette. It's Rachel, a replicant of Rachel, dressed as she was the first time they met. Yeah, which as a fashion choice is quite jarring in 2020. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's like the ultimate 80s power suit, and I, I mean, uh, look, I love it. It's a moment, uh, and it's important that she looks exactly the same for the sake of the movie, but it does stand out quite a bit from, uh, the streetwear that we see throughout, because I, ugh, oh my the God. fashion they in this actually, movie. They did actually wear this stuff. I didn't realize, I just looked up 1980s power suit, they did genuinely wear. <laughs> yeah, the shoulder pads. Oh, it's a look. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a even got look. the Blade Runner, the, the Blade Runner, uh, uh suit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
It's yeah, pretty um, weird. Like they, they want to turn women into squares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's about looking as cubic as possible. As, yeah, the more the more cubicness, the more powerful yes. you are. Yeah, if your shoulders, the higher the shoulders, <laughs> the closer to the top of the corporate ladder you could climb. <laughs> I do love the fashion in this movie. I, there's nothing I want more than to have Kay's jacket in real life because it just looks so comfy. It's, like it's like a leather jacket with like a fur collar and man, does it look cozy. Uh, it does look like it would weigh man. like 30 kgs though. Oh yeah, you would have the full weight of like an entire wet dog on you every time you wore it. But it would <laughs> think of the aesthetic, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I know. Think of that's the important part. Anyway, sorry, mm-hmm. we're getting mm-hmm. sidetracked. Yes, we're getting sidetracked. Uh, so Wallace attempts to tempt Deckard with Rachel, uh, and while it seems like Deckard is certainly emotionally taken aback by seeing the face of his love once more, he just responds with, "Her eyes were green," and turns his back on the replicant, which prompts Wallace yeah. to kill the Rachel copy and start threatening Deckard instead. Like, I'm just gonna cause a lot of pain until you do what I want. Her her eyes were green again because this version of Rachel is soulless. <laughs> it's not the right eyes. So sorry, no. just, I know these are metaphors. Everyone. It picks up it's on, important. It's like I, I'd feel remiss if I. I do you feel remiss? Yeah. I would be remiss if I did mm. not mention them because someone in the comments is going to be like, "Wow, didn't even mention this." You know, the most important <laughs> moment. I got great like, news yeah. for you, Tim. There is no comment section on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it there? I'm so unfamiliar with the podcast. People word. do How email do us like... sometimes, and people can leave reviews, but they they would have to leave a review specifically calling. I I guess I'm inviting this now by saying, but you have to leave a review specifically calling us out on forgetting to mention an eye metaphor. Uh, it's not so much Everyone, a comment section like on a YouTube please. video. Please leave a review and call me out for things you feel I've missed. Uh, I will feel especially remiss for you. Excellent. So on this is where we then go back to Joe for a bit. On a rainy rooftop, he he watches a a large Joy hologram, and she runs through very similar lines to the beginning, uh, the first time we ever saw Joy about him coming home uh, and having a hard day at work. And even go so far as to call him a good Joe, the name that his joy gave him uh, before Mm. returning to her billboard. And he's sort of like left to contemplate what that means about the joy that he was so close to the relationship that they had, since it is all based on the programming um, that it seems every joy has, even though their connection to the audience is one of closeness. Uh, Yes, please. I know you have a lot of thoughts on the scene. I (laughs) I think everyone misinterprets the scene, okay? Because Mm. the most conventional understanding of the film with this scene is that Kay realizes he is, in fact, not the chosen one. He was not the human he thought he was meant to be. He also realizes that Joy was, in fact, just a bunch of code that was just nothing. She is hollow. She was everything he wanted to see and hear, built into this lie that he wanted to believe, and that, that of course, ultimately all of that was a lie. This, to me, is such a wildly, unfathomably stupid way to interpret the film, <laughs> because it basically nullifies the point of it, which mm-hmm. is, of course, as I've been talking about, constructed humanity. So the first thing that you will notice with this giant joy hologram is that her eyes are black. They are Mm -hmm. empty. And so there is no humanity in her. That's fair. That's fine. But if humanity is something that we treat, that we treat others with, if it's something that we acquire, if it's something we build for ourselves through acting upon it, acting with it, then 
joy and K must both be equally human. Remember, K, mm. just as much as Joy, was not born in the same in the same uh, as as he expected. But we've already broken down that being born doesn't make you human. Right. And not only not only beyond that, but so the, the main line here is that Joy is uh, a, a, a name. Uh, that, that sorry, Joe is a name that she gave him, and that that mm-hmm. that that that's not a normal name. It's not that it, it's a perfectly common name. She calls everyone that. It doesn't hold any meaning whatsoever. And we can parallel this with the name Love. So he says earlier on in the film, he says, she says, oh, my name's Love. And he goes, oh, he must love you because you've got an actual name, you know. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that in both the case of Joy and Love, they're diminutive names. They're names that, like, we call people, call people we don't have another name for them. Oh, hey there, Love. Hey there, sweetie. That sort of thing. And mm-hmm. also Joe being the name that she calls everyone. But both of these names, both of these names are, 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 are hold value to them because they attach meaning to it. They construct meaning out of it. And mm. if, 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 if K is not human in the sense that like he has a soul in all the ways that matter, uh, that he chooses to act, um, that he chooses to act for himself, that he feels, that he loves, that he embraces his own sense of humanity, as he has been acting upon it for the entire rest of the film so far, and eventually now he chooses to go out and and, and sacrifice his life for a greater good, which remember, Frazier said is the most human thing you can do. Mm-hmm. If that's true, and that Kay is human because of those choices and how he's been at treating Joy, uh, and how Joy has treated him. Uh, and again, with the police chief saying, sometimes I forget, I forget that you're a replicant, and she treats him with humanity, that makes him feel more human. If Kay is human because of that, then Joy has to be too. Joy has been treating him in, in all the meaningful ways that we have uh, been seeing Kay do it. And not only that, if being human is the most meaningful thing, you, the most human thing, if, um, if dying for, a, for, for someone is the most human thing you can do, Joy does exactly that. She saves his life. She does numerous things throughout the story which indicate that she acts independent of, of, uh, of uh, Kay, which I find really interesting. Like when she's talking with um, the, the sex worker who she brings into, mm-hmm. the, uh, into, the, into the apartment, you know, she's like, get out of here, I don't need you. And Kay's not in the room at that point. He's off in the shower. Right. So over and over, we've got Joy doing the exact same things that Kay does to express his humanity. If you want to, if you want to interpret the film as saying that Kay and Joy are both equally not human, do not have a soul, are not full of meaning, but in fact, actually, Anna Staline is the only human character, is the only um, replicant-born human, is the only human replicant because she was born. Then I guess you are free to interpret that way, interpret it that way. But that, to me, would make the film a lot less impactful and less meaningful than this other interpretation, which is that he's looking at her, he's looking at this giant projected hologram of joy, and seeing that she she uh, is is calling him this, and instead. Uh, reflecting on what it actually means to be human, letting go of the idea that he has to be born, that she has to be, uh, letting go of the idea that he has to be born to be human, letting go of the idea that Joy was not human uh, just because she was coded that way. But in fact, mm-hmm. what's real is what feels real. You what you ask them if they're real, like, like Dickard says, uh, ask him, well, Kay would say yes. Kay would say that his relationship with Joy felt real. You ask Joy, she would say yes, it felt real to her. Suddenly, it's all about constructed meaning, and it's about him letting go of the idea of inherent meaning 
uh, mm -hmm. defined by these things that other people have been restricting them, putting them into a box about. I think that's a really interesting interpretation. And I, I, I like the idea that you mentioned at the end there about constructed meaning, because the, the tagline for the Joy hologram is what you want her to be. And it in the case of Kay, he wants her to be human. And mm. if, if you're going off of that basis of constructed meaning, if what does Joy want to be? Joy wants to be human for Kay or human for herself. Um, I, I think that that's a really nice is the wrong word, but that is a nice way of tying <laughs> that, yeah. that slogan into that um, interpretation. I, I like that a lot. I, um... I, I know, I'm sorry I took out so much time to discuss that no, particular please. point. It's just like my core crux thing with the film. And also, <laughs> when I said that like this projections of Joy's eyes are hollow, remember, Kay's Joy's eyes are not. Like, no. there's no, I, I, I'm kind of like, th there's a reason for that immediate contrast mm -hmm. and it's it's, it's got to be that, that that joy's eyes are of course full of life and full of soul because she is you know um full of yeah yeah she is she is full of personality and personhood mm -hmm. so kind of just to keep us moving here because we're coming up on a time for the podcast that we we jump into the last 25 minutes or so of the movie which is where most of the heavy action sequence kicks in and we go full cyberpunk in the music uh, a series of cars containing Love and Deckard fly over open ocean um, with Joe in pursuit. He's able to, to fire on them from his car and take out two of the support ships, leaving only Love and Deckard in the air. But not for long, as they have to make an emergency water landing on what would have been a beach, but is now a, a concrete tilted area leading up to the ocean, uh, up to the wall surrounding not-so-sunny Los Angeles. The um, wall. <laughs> the wall. Oh. Yeah. It's it's the it's the less than obvious less than uh, subtle obvious metaphor for the dam of truth breaking. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, Joe lands as well, and he and Love get into a firing match that turns into the two of them wrestling in the shallow waves of the ocean as Deckard remains tied up in the rapidly filling with water uh, car. As the two of them are fighting, Deckard is trying to free himself but having no luck. Distracted by Deckard's predicament, uh, Joe leaves himself open, being stabbed by Love, who, seemingly having conquered him, declares herself the best one before swimming out to grab Deckard. I think that, <laughs> that line in particular is felt very the most childlike. like a very childlike. It's like a sibling rivalry, almost. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And also, she she kisses him the same way mm -hmm. that Wallace kisses the replicant, like when yes. he kills her. Yeah. It, but still, she's very she's infantile, and I thought that really came mm -hmm. out here. Like, it's like a ch child's competing for their parents' affection, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, and she goes out to the boat to grab Deckard, but before she can free him, Joe po po pops out of the water Jaws style and starts choking her. <laughs> she, you know, he first he's holding her up at the top of the car and then eventually underwater, and it cuts between the two of them, uh, straining against each other before eventually she's able to fight no more uh, and succumbs to breathing in uh, water and drowns. Joe then frees Deckard, pulling him from the car as it begins to sink and swimming to shore. They both kind of struggle against the waves, but eventually make it. Uh, and as the love and the car sink into the sea, Deckard tells Joe that he should have just let him die out there before Joe is like, you did, you drowned out there, as far as anyone's concerned. Um, he's like, Deckard, I'm going to take you to meet your daughter now. Uh, and we go back to the Memory Institute where Dr. Anna is snow is falling once again joe gives deckard back the wooden horse from his own memories uh and sends him in to meet his daughter 
And after he leaves, Joe begins his last long contemplative shot sequence of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so beautiful, though, with the snow falling and like the slight camera tilt as he lies Mm -hmm. down. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, he he lets the snow fall on his hands as he did last time he left the Institute, sitting down on the snowy steps and opening his coat to reveal just how injured he is to the audience before uh, laying back slowly and letting the snow continue to fall on him as he slowly and contemplatively uh, dies, as he has done for the rest of the movie. Um, Inside, Anna is creating some snow around herself as Deckard enters, and she says, you know, it's beautiful, isn't it? Referring to the snow. Deckard just sort of stares dumbstruck at her before putting his hand on the glass, and then we cut to black. So the movie ends on the final shot of Deckard uh, looking at his long-estranged daughter. Yeah, perfectly uh, setting up uh, Blade Runner 2049 2, Too Fast, Too Furious, uh, where Deckard goes on a killing spree and wipes out the... Yeah, Two Blade, Two Runner. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That is the single greatest uh, sequel naming convention that anyone has ever developed. The minute they named that movie Too Fast, Too Furious, they created the most important cultural touch point of our time. There is nothing funnier than Too Something, Too Furious. (laughs) And you know they what the thing it. is about the the great thing about it is that you know what the best theme will be in it family. That's family. what it'll be. That's what family. every Vin Diesel movie is about at the end of the day, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, uh, 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 that's that's twenty forty nine. I you love this movie. I like this movie quite a bit. Just sort of to kind of wrap this up here, because um, we're we're running pretty long. Do you have any sort of closing thoughts on the movie? Uh, I usually like to ask if people would. You know, what situations people would recommend our listeners maybe go watch this movie in? And, and just sort of any, uh, any final thoughts here, Tim? Uh, it, it is not a conventional science fiction film. It is very slow. It is very contemplative. Uh, and it, 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 if you liked Arrival, you might like it. But um, I understand mm-hmm. why it's not for everyone. Yeah, Those I, would, are my I thoughts. would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've raved enough about it throughout the rest of the podcast that I don't really need to be like, but you'd like it if you like this. Yeah, I think we I think we've covered most of our bases pretty heartily on this one. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would agree. If you if you like sci-fi, I, this is definitely a movie that I think you will enjoy. But it is it's not it's not Total Recall. It's not Terminator. We're not gonna you're not gonna get as much from action from the action set pieces as you are going to get more of that uh, thoughtful contemplative storytelling. It this is this is a movie that is more about the questions it's asking than giving you answers or entertaining you and I, I think that there's a lot of value in watching that. But maybe it's not the go-to for like a squad movie night. Maybe this is more of something you watch if you're interested in you know, t- t- spending some time with yourself and watching something that is is truly incredibly well made and uh, and thoughtful in its use of its genre and its themes um but tim thank you thank you so much for joining us uh if our if our listeners want to find more of your thoughts on blade runner and and other such topics is there is there somewhere they could go for that is there somewhere they could get more of the hello future me experience uh well i mean you could check out my my youtube channel uh that'll be where i do most of my stuff educational content but thank you very much for having me on this podcast this has been a blast just being able to rave about this uh and you're an amazing host thank you very much Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I guess we'll we'll go. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I've I've got some uh, flying cars I got to go track down. So I think let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's take a leave. Let's go wait. <laughs> you know what? No, I'm not gonna bring it back to thick milky. We're just gonna end the podcast <laughs> now. <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on August 30th to talk about film bro favorite Rushmore, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns before then, feel free to email the show at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. And for more from our guest Tim, be sure to check out the links to Hello Future Me on YouTube and his socials in the show notes below.